Shoulder of Orion is brought to you by the generous support of our incredible patrons. To learn more about joining our Patreon, please visit www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, Dan. Tonight we did something a little bit different and recorded a crossover episode for you guys with our friend Tony from Flix X-Raid Podcast, a movie podcast out of Canada. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, welcome to Flix X-Raid. I'm your host, Tony, and tonight I have joining me from pretty much all over the States, as far as I'm aware, uh, the guys from the Shoulder of Orion Podcast. How's it going, guys? Hey. Hey. Great. And Thanks tonight for having we're going to be talking about, uh, obviously, your favorite, one of your favorite movies, uh, Blade Runner, as you guys are apparently the experts to go to about this film with your entire podcast dedicated about it. So why don't we take a moment here to get to know our uh, lovely guests. Why don't you guys uh, tell us a little bit about your podcast and, uh, you know, what is your uh, favorite movie snack when you're going to the theater? Jamie, why don't you start? You're the one who had the sole idea in the first place. The founder? The founder. Uh, well, I started the podcast because uh, Blade Runner 2049 was coming out, and uh, Patrick and I were working on a perfect organism, the Alien Saga podcast, which is, you know, um, something that we've been doing for a while. And uh, I was like, who's talking about Blade Runner? And I did some investigation all over, looking, no one was. Um, which is kind of funny because that's how Dan became a part of us. He was looking to see who was talking about Blade Runner, and we had just started up uh, in August of 2017. And um, again, it was there was nobody. I mean, there there were people who who had episodes about Blade Runner in their podcasts, but uh, I just felt like, hey, this is a time to corner the market. Not just because we're cornering the market, but because it's one of my all-time favorite films. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the birth of the podcast and it's taken us, I mean, it's, it's been an amazing ride. We've just talked to some amazing people and, uh, yeah. And we're going to be throwing some events and, uh, interviewing some more awesome people. And my favorite movie snack is Twizzlers. Twizzlers. I have to get Twizzlers every time. Yep. That's fair. I like fuck red vines. I'm a nips guy personally. (laughs) Okay. A nips guy. Nibs. Oh, nibs. Oh. I guess. Well, I like nips too, but that's a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's a hell of a movie snack. I'll, I'll go next. So I'm, I'm Patrick. And uh, so, as Jamie mentioned, you know, he and I met doing stuff uh, within the alien universe. And there's always been a, a really fascinating cross current between Alien fandom and Blade Runner fandom. And Ridley Scott's a pretty obvious link between those two things. But there's other sort of aesthetic considerations and philosophical considerations. So we kind of run in circles with a lot of these, you know, both fandoms kind of combine quite a bit. And um, so it seemed like a natural fit. Blade Runner for me was always a movie that that was very personal and very intimate and that I really didn't talk about with other people very much because I didn't really run into other Blade Runner fans too frequently. You know, you run into alien fans everywhere you go, but Blade Runner is a very kind of uh, a very inward facing movie. So this whole thing has been this amazing journey for me of kind of putting out in the world what was very much in my heart for a long time. And, um, and as Jamie mentioned, it's been this incredible ride. And I'm going to finally get to meet these guys in a few weeks, going to fly out to Los Angeles to do some interviews for the show. And, uh, and I, it's, pretty surreal it's been a great a great time as far as movie snacks go 
I am very, it's, it's, yeah, I know, I know. All right. It's, it really depends on my mood. I know that's not the right answer, but it's, it's sometimes sweet and sometimes savory. The classic go-to for me is popcorn, lightly buttered, just, just lightly buttered. <laughs> but if I'm being honest, lightly buttered, lightly buttered. <laughs> I'm going to be, I'm going to be totally honest. I think that the actual best movie snack uh, is the, uh, uh, non-pareils. And I'm, this is why I'm saying that, because nobody gets a non-Perel just in the wild. You don't, like, go to a store and go, like, oh, I want some, like, you know, little chocolate discs with white sprinkles on top. But you go to the movie theater, and people buy them all the time. I've and so I think heard of those. I don't know what the hell that is, Patrick. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what those are either. <laughs> I'm not be saying it right. Non-Perel? Non-Perel? I don't know. They're, they're, like little, they're like little Frisbees of chocolate with little white dots on the top. They're deciduous and granular. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, okay, apparently in Boston, this is the thing. Yeah, that must you be go a to Boston movie theater thing. and people are buying these things like it's nobody's <clears throat> business. And so, so to me, I think I'm going to say that they are the ideal snack because they're something that you don't really get unless you're in a movie theater. And when you're in a movie theater, they're pretty darn good. All right, I'll have to look for those. Um, I've never even heard of that before. <laughs> a weirdly specific okay. answer from a weirdly specific person that is Patrick. <laughs> that, no surprise, your snack matches you very well, my friend. Um, yeah, I'm Dan, and uh, I was the late uh, newcomer onto the show about, well, first I was just a fan. And again, like Jamie said, I was, when 2049 was coming out, I was like, oh, I wonder, I've been listening to all kinds of podcasts, but I was like, oh, I wonder if there's a Blade Runner podcast. Sure enough, it was easy to find because it was the only one. And after a few listens of, I don't know, 12 episodes in or something, um, they were talking about 2049. I uh, called in with a question, and then a couple episodes later, they ended up playing my voicemail, which I, you know, was surprising and cool as a fan. And eventually, I started talking to Jamie online about the uh, the movies, and, um, you know, he just saw, while I didn't have technical background uh, in movies or music, um, I did have a lot of passion for the film. It's certainly my favorite film of all time. It was Patrick's idea first sure sure um but they eventually invited me to be the third uh, i didn't want him on the show <laughs> <laughs> patrick was like, uh, no patrick was kind enough to invite me to host the show and uh, i thought about it and wanted to make sure i could put the effort in but i agreed and now i've been on there for more than half the show i think and so we've uh, put in a lot of effort and i think that we have different enough personalities and we are nerdy and specific about different things that we compliment each other well yeah so i was invited to host the show with these guys and i've been on there since the yeah it's been just over a year i think and we've done a lot of amazing things and um jamie and i have met in person in la interviewed people again patrick will come and meet us for the first time next month but um yeah we'll talk more about my love for blade runner just like i'm sure we all will but um it's been a great experience and it's been fun joining the podcast uh quote-unquote business so excellent all right gents uh, since we, uh, wait, Dan, did you say what your favorite uh, movie snack was? Oh, no, no he didn't. Me. So normally I would be really boring and say that I normally don't eat anything during the movie because I, I, <laughs> I don't want to be distracted and I'm focusing on the film and someone else is inevitably annoying me unwrapping something. And I'm like, I don't want to be that guy. But, um, one of my favorite podcasts is always talking about the, peanut m&m bag into the popcorn to do like oh, a no. salty uh salty oh thing. yeah and i definitely want to try that i just keep forgetting <laughs> but eventually i'm gonna try that out because it sounds amazing you get that little coating with the butter right Perfect. around oh yeah Gross. chocolate that does sound amazing jamie jamie's like puking over there 
<laughs> Although I do like um, the, what do they call it when they mix regular popcorn with caramel corn? Oh yeah, um, kettle corn. I love that. I love it. Oh, no, so, what do they call it, Patrick? Nonpareils. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nonpareils might be good in pop in popcorn actually. I bet. You know, we got a popcorn maker for Christmas for our eldest kid. Oh, that's because cool. you know big movie family and uh so we've been like making unique cross strains of popcorns and mixing different things together <laughs> of course learning a lot about like the way that like there's certain types of um like there's butterfly pops and then there's like circular ones oh. you know sometimes it's different ways and they hold cheese or they hold caramel differently so you can kind of wow really hybridize that shit the, anyway i'm sorry the level no that's the, all good the level that actually sounds <laughs> delicious and experimental yeah all right so guys <laughs> it's time for us to play a game uh, so normally, uh, I normally do a game where it's a back and forth kind of thing, but in this case, just to account for Skype lag so no one gets screwed over because it happens, uh, we're, I'm going to get all of you guys to answer. We're going to play a game of higher or lower for sci-fi movies. So essentially, you guys are going to try and guess if the budget was more than or less than $20 million. And these adjusted are not Blade Runner movies. This is not adjusted for inflation, right? This is in... This is when it was made. Original budgets. Original budgets. I could do adjusted for infl- infl- infiltration. You know. Thank you. Infiltration, <laughs> that's the word. Inflation. But uh, I think it's more fun to go from the original. All right. So uh, we're going to kind of go in a round robin here. And I'll just kind of say who starts each round. So like it's one person doesn't get screwed over always starting the rounds. So we're going to start with Dan. And uh, the first movie is, do you think the budget for the sixth day was higher or lower than uh, 20? Well. <laughs> Um, I'm going to go, can we ask the year or do we have to know that on our own? Yeah, uh, you have to, you have to know that on your own, okay. mostly because I didn't pull it. So I'd have to think, <laughs> look it up. I'm going to go lower. Lower. All right, Jamie. Same movie? Yep, same movie. You guys are going to guess all on the same movies here. Oh, lower. All right, Patrick. Uh, I'm going to say higher. We're talking mid nineties. We're talking Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm going to say it was $24 million. You're actually way off. It was $82 million. Whoa. So Patrick gets the point here. <laughs> it's called, there's a, it's wow. a movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger called The Sixth Day. Yes. <laughs> I've never even heard of it. It's a popular Oh, yeah. It was, I've uh, heard of End of Days. Also good. But this was, uh, you know, mid-90s. It was uh, definitely $82 million budget. I think it was actually 96, if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah. Okay. Most of his films are forgettable, so. Oh, come on. Oh, come true. on. Don't you that's say true. that in You this can't house. say most. Most, except for Terminator and Predator. Terminator and Terminator 2 and Predator and, and Commando 2. and Conan the Barbarian. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> he, he has a wonderful body of work behind him. All right. Kindergarten so Cop, up. come on. Right, that's the ball. All right, so 2001 A Space Odyssey and, Jamie, you're starting this round. Good one. Higher uh, or saying- lower? Then twenty million. That's just the the median. That's, that's just the median for this. Higher. Higher. Yep. Patrick. Lower. It's nineteen sixty nine. There's not a huge. Uh, I'm, it, I mean, it has like the Trumbull physical effects, but it doesn't have any big stars attached. I'm saying it was nineteen million dollars. Final answer. That's right, a, Dan. That is a long time ago, but I'm thinking more in the between twenty and twenty five. So I'm gonna go higher. Patrick, you're just rocking so far. Uh, it's actually twelve. Twelve million dollars. <laughs> Even with all the, like the scene, like the sets they built and all that stuff, it was still only twelve million dollars. 
crazy. Congratulations, Patrick. Stay <laughs> for me. I'm not good. gonna lie. I'm gonna remember this. I'm I, gonna I, remember. I heard there's a crown in this show. I want to see this crown. I'm crowning. Gross. <laughs> oh, there it is. Nice. <laughs> Solid. It's what I get people to wear when they're in studio. It's uh, the prize. <laughs> and it also, also helps uh, us know who was the winner and they get to gloat. All right, so next up, Star Wars A New Hope. Patrick, you're starting us. Higher or lower than 20? Uh, that's higher. All right, Dan. Yeah, this is 10 years after, right? Or maybe a little bit less. I'm going to go higher as well. All right, Jamie? Um, I don't, I mean, I'm a big Star Wars fan, but. Obviously from the shirt. Oh, yeah. Uh, I would say lower, actually, than 20. Well, you can uh, wear that shirt with pride because it was only 11. Yeah. Bam. Blue Harvest. Right? All right, so next up, uh, someone here should hopefully get this one. Uh, Alien. So we're starting back at Dan. Easy peasy. Oh, man, of course. Higher or lower? The one person who's not on the Alien podcast. He wants um, to be on. He wants to be on. You aren't coming on. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. 79, but not a lot of huge stars for the time. Um, I think I'm going to go lower. All right. Jamie? Lower. And Patrick? Lower. You guys are all right. Look, everyone's got points at least now. Patrick's in the lead. All right, so next up. Commandingly. Commandingly. Starship Troopers. Jamie, you're starting this round. Higher. Higher. Yeah, Higher. I'm going to say 60, 68 million. 68. All right, we got we to gotta guess there. If you get it bang on, I'll, I'll give you double points. How's that? Mm. All right. Uh, man, that was a lot of CGI. I mean, it was at the beginning of it, but it does look good. Uh, came out the same year Alien Resurrection came out. The trailers also, were playing for the Oscar time. for its, uh, you know, its special effects. Yeah, I'm gonna go higher. You guys are all uh, correct on that one. It was 103 million dollars. Wow! Wow, that is a genuine that big is, budget movie, and it flopped. It flopped hard. And it was what 97. It was more expensive than Alien Resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Tony, it came you out in the said, summer. You never said Resurrection came the, out uh, in November. What the actual budget was for Alien? Uh, Eleven. 11, okay. All right, next up, Titan AE, animated 2000. Oh, it's getting hard. Ooh, yeah. She said. <laughs> oh, I'm up. Uh, Titan AE, that's what, it's like 2002? 2000, like even. Two, it was in 2000, okay. Matt Damon. Uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, um, I'm going to say lower. Lower? All right. Yeah. Dan? The animation is really throwing me off. Um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go higher. Okay. Yeah, me too. It's higher. There's a lot of stuff going on with that movie. All right. So Dan and Jamie get that. It was actually uh, 75 mil. Wow. Yeah, it That's got it got retooled and remade, and there's all this crazy stuff going on with that movie. Early on, I'm not gonna CGI. Lie. Yep. I know nothing about that. I don't even remember. It's what actually, the really good. Was. Well, sorta. I'm picturing the Iron Giant, but we're talking about it. Oh, that movie. is a fucking masterpiece. I haven't seen it, but I heard it's amazing. Ask him about that one. You'll win. Get- oh. <laughs> All right. Next <laughs> up, gents. Deep Impact. Yeah. Dan, you're starting us again. Oh, that was Dan last I night. I don't even remember this movie at all. <laughs> um, 
I'm going to go higher. Morgan Freeman. All right. Jamie? Higher. Uh, I'm going to say just uh, way, way higher than $20 million. I'm going to say $197 million. Oh, my God. Oh, that's a, that's quite a budget. Um, that's like an Avatar budget right there. <laughs> that's like Titanic. It came out about a year from Armag- uh, from was it Armageddon, I think, Armageddon, the Michael yeah. Bay film. Yeah. They were both these into the end of the world like late 90s yep okay all right you guys all get a point on that one it was uh 75 mil was that 275 (laughs) (laughs) uh sure all right next up uh going back back in time with back to the future Ooh, good one patrick is starting us higher or lower lower than 20 million dollars all right dan not that many crazy effects, and Michael J. Fox was not that famous at the time. I'm going to go lower. You could do that for cheap. Jamie? Well, it was the original, and it was directed by, uh, what's his name? Bobby Zemeckis. Yeah, Robert Zemeckis. Um, I'm actually going to say a little higher than $20 million, though. Well, Patrick and Dan get the points on this one. It's actually 19 Oh, just oh. under. Look at that, Jamie. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> I let you in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys were tied for a second there. All right, so next up, we have RoboCop. Higher or lower? Oh, the original, not the remake. Nice. Not Another Verhoeven. And uh, Dan, you're starting us. Okay. Uh, let's see. This is... V- 90s? Yeah. No, right. the original RoboCop 90s? is what, 80 f- 85 or something? Is that the original is 85? Yeah, 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 the original. Okay. We're talking 85, Verhoeven, but no huge stars. Lots of effects. Um, I'm th- thinking, like, yeah, that it's going to be close, I think. Um, I'm going to go under. All right, we got an under. Jamie? I'd say higher. Higher, all right. Patrick? My God, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> I'm going to say lower. All right. Patrick and Dan get it again. It was only 13. Oh, um, yeah. I was thinking like 15 or something. Okay. That is an astoundingly gruesome movie. I just want to throw that out there. That is a mo- it's, it's easy to forget how gross that fucking movie is. Oh, my God. Yeah. But it's good. It is brutal and beautiful all oh, at yeah. once. It, yeah. It's a great movie, and it's a it's such a stunning example of Verhoeven's ability to make something that on the surface, like Starship Troopers, just looks like some action movie, and really there's so much more going on, but it's like it, right. you got to dig deeper. Um, and yeah. a little a little cool bit of trivia I learned recently. My friend who's a nurse, I've said this on the Blade Runner podcast, my friend who's a nurse told me that is the most accurate coding scene in all movies ever. It's completely accurate, the phraseology they're using, et cetera, et cetera. But I learned more recently that the reason it's so accurate is they weren't actors. They hired a trauma team and brought them in just to perform the scene where he's brought in, which is really cool. It's like if you ever go back and watch um, the original Mad Max, the reason that it's so graphic and looks so great is because, um, I can't remember his name, the director slash writer of Mad Max, he actually was a paramedic. Oh, cool. Yeah, he's a doctor. Yeah, he's a doctor. And yeah. like most of the scenes you see are him actually recreating paramedic scenes that he went to. That's which amazing. is why it's awesome. like so fucking stunning. All right, final one. Here we go. And uh, Jamie, you're starting us off here with obviously your favorite actor in The Running Man. Ooh. <laughs> I 
I only saw this recently for the first time. Uh, the Running Man, I think higher or lower than $20 million. Um, What year was this? Uh, Running Man would have been 80. Yeah, I think 82 or 83. Early, early 80s. Lower. All right. Patrick, your so, current leader. With the uh, commanding lead. I, so here's the thing. Not really. You're only up here's... by one. Well, it's, it's, it's commanding enough. You know, it feels, it feels commanding. I think I'm going to say uh, I'm going to say lower, but there is a piece of trivia associated with the Running Man, and I can't remember what it was, but it comes up in trivia competitions. So it might this might be a trick. I'm just throwing that out there, but I'm going to say lower. All right, Dan, you're uh, you're trailing by one point here behind Patrick, just oh, so you're aware. Crap. Commanding loss. <laughs> um, yeah, logic dictates based on the factors that I would also have to go lower. All right, well, none of you guys get the point on that one. It's actually $27 million. See, I knew it. I knew was it. my chance. I lost my chance. <laughs> you could have tied it up right there. I actually have a tiebreaker just in case. But, so, uh, Patrick, you, uh, you win the pro- point there. You win the first game, uh, which means you actually get a disadvantage later. So, anyway. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> That's how I work this. Uh, and if you were in the studio, you'd get to wear the pretty, pretty princess crown that I got from the dollar store. <laughs> it's beautiful, I have to say. I think you need right? to look around and find a replacement where you are, Patrick. Put something stupid <laughs> on your head. I'll work on it. I'll work on it. <laughs> All right, so uh, guys, let's take a moment now to actually get into talking about Blade Runner. So, can you guys each give me a two sentence impression of the film? Not a synopsis, like a personal impression of the film in two sentences. So, I would say that it is a profound meditation on the meaning of life told through the beauty of science fiction as an allegorical tool for change and for reflection and that it is a unique aesthetic statement that I don't think has ever been matched in cinema history. God damn it, Patrick. All right, Dan, follow that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Heavy is the head that wears the crown, buddy. Patrick lights (laughs) the stage on fire and then tells me follow that. (laughs) Visually breathtaking and something that unfortunately not having had this privilege, but I can imagine walking out of the theater the first time and having just no idea what just hit you both in depth, um, in filmmaking, just all around. But I think that visually with everything else, the movie has going on. The visuals are so impactful for the time when it was made. All right, perfect. And uh, Jamie, finish us off here. I would say that Blade Runner is a study on what it is to be human and uh, uh, a further dive into what it is to lose your humanity. All right, so that's beautiful, by the way. And it's interesting that it comes from uh, an author such as... um, Philip Dick. The concept of it came from while he was researching uh reading the journals of nazis and how he had he realized they had to be robots in order to do what they did and this just spawned this whole thing what do you guys think about that and the replicants as a metaphor for like what the nazis and the loss of humanity uh i know patrick's gonna have a lot to say on this because he's been rereading do androids dream of electric sheep uh recently for a project he's working on um 
and I actually recently bought the comic series where they, they redo the entire book word for word. So it is like reading the book, but in visual format. Um, I haven't finished it yet, but I, and I have read the book, but it's been a while. Um, I think that Dick's intent in the book and the way he got inspired is almost 180 degrees different from what inspired Ridley Scott and from what the finished product ended up being. It explores humanity in a different way um, mm-hmm. because I think that Dick was trying to associate, not that he was making an association between replicants and Nazis exactly, but the concept of you'd have to be a robot and you'd have to not have emotion and you'd not have to not understand human emotion and not have empathy is where he came up with the idea of the replicant. Whereas in the film, which is, arguably one of the most famous examples I think of what most people would say if you ask people um, think of a movie that was better than the book which is rare right most of the time there's so much detail in books people will say well you know the movie was great but it's a different medium and I enjoyed the book a lot more etc etc rarely do people say that about Blade Runner most of the time it's like oh man they the movie and you know it's interesting because Ridley Scott never even finished do androids dream of electric sheep probably to this day but certainly not before production he read you know the first third of it or something like that and was like okay i get it i got enough so that's interesting and that may have played a part in why the movie the why the film ended up being so different from the book um but yeah to go back to your question i think that replicants represent so much more than the concept that dick had in mind which is a little bit more geared towards deckard and his internal psychology Um, I think in the film, you really get into this concept, like Jamie mentioned, of what it means to be human and can something that's not biologically human um, find humanity and be looked upon as a human. Um, And that's really one of the big themes that the film explores using the characters of the replicants. Interesting. Rebuttal. Jamie? (laughs) Well, I would even uh, go so far as to say that Ridley Scott and uh, Hampton Fancher, who is really attributed with rewriting that story, flipped the script. The humans were the <sighs> humans were essentially the non-humans, totally. and the the replicants were the Jews. That's just how it was. Um, mm. So I think, but the humans in have become non-human because they've lost their empathy, um, and that's kind of really what what's at heart at the heart of everything is the, the loss of empathy. Um, it's a, it's kind of this line that kind of starts with Blade Runner and goes through, through the sequel, you know, you see these, and then by the end of the sequel, you see a Blade Runner, or I'm sorry, you see a replicant who has also become human. She has no empathy. You know, that's what love was. She was, uh, uh, a, a replicant without empathy. Whereas in the original, um, and a little bit in 2049, um, you could feel the, the empathy within these characters. You could feel that, uh, you could see it in their faces. You could see it in their, in their, uh, reactions that they were empathetic creatures. Um, so yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I wonder you, Patrick. I don't, I don't have too much to add to that, but I, I think, um, there's a transference that happens where the book is really the story of Deckard. And I don't think the movie is, I think the movie is kind of marketed as it because of Harrison Ford and because Deckard's obviously a memorable character, but it's not, it's not really about him in the movie. Deckard is kind of a cipher for us to experience the film. I would, I would argue. And I think in a lot of ways becomes a kind of a stand in for 
ourselves at points in our lives where we kind of need to be reawakened to the to the you know miracle that it is to just be here on earth in the first place um whereas the book really goes in so much detail i mean about his life about his marriage about his moods i mean like the penfield mood organ is such a huge part of the book it's like it starts with like eight pages about it and then it just comes back and it, and there's nothing remotely similar to that in in the film right but like but the whole book is kind of predicated on this notion that we've gotten to a point where we no longer have any um we're, we're becoming so unnatural that we are forced to use synthetic means to make ourselves feel normal again. And the movie really doesn't even get into that. The movie is much more about this existential question of what is real and what's not and what's human and what's, what isn't human and who has the right to say that and what is, what are the implications of it? So, yeah. Interesting. You bring that up because I also know that there's a lot of fans and people who argue online on whether or not Deckard is, uh, you know, a replicant or not. What do you guys think about that? Because they never actually show it, but if you really look at the character and what they say makes a replicant, do you think he's a replicant or do you think he's just someone who needs to refine his humanity? It's funny because just today I was getting into that online in one of the groups because inevitably about we're, you know, obviously there's several Facebook groups dedicated to either both films, 2049, the original science fiction in general, but mostly I follow the Blade Runner groups and, I don't know. You guys could give a different estimate, but I would say at least a couple of times a month, someone just throws out the quote, the question is uh, Deckard a replicant or is he human? It's to the point where I'm at this point, I'm like, can you go back to the earlier threads? Because people wrote like 1200 comments on this. Like we, can we not restart this conversation every time? But I, I mean, I'm happy to have it now, obviously, especially for uh, a new audience in a sense. Um, and, it, it is a very important question. I think it's just one of many important questions that come up in the film. Um, and, you know, I do have my own feelings. I've reached the conclusion for me, and, and the camps are very split and it's very subjective and there's evidence to for both, um, both truths. But I personally think Deckard is not a replicant and he's human. And my main reasoning is that it... I think the story in terms of empathy and in terms of the parallel to the replicants and who, how they think they are and whether they're human or not, um, it works much better and is much more impactful if Deckard is a human. Um, so that's personally what I believe, mostly because I think the story works a lot better. Um, and, you know, you can take the details of the reflections in his eyes and all these other famous details from the film where you can decide one way or the other what it's implying. Um, but in the end... Honestly, my personal answer and my favorite answer is that it doesn't really matter whether he's replicant or human. What matters to me in the story is that he would question his own reality and his own humanity because you get to watch a character like Rachel who is just broken down and has to rebuild herself because she finds out that she's not a human. Spoiler mm-hmm. alert. That's um, well, why we have that at the beginning. Right. Whereas Deckard is never in that position until enough things happen and enough conversations happen where he's forced to question his own reality. And I think that, and and his own humanity. And I think that that's an important lesson and an important thinking point for everyone in any situation really is to question your own reality and who you are. So that's how I like to look at it. Excellent. Patrick. Well, I think the short answer is that he is and he also is not because the person who portrayed him says he's not and the person who directed that portrayal says that he is, 
a replicant, you know, so, and, and this is an ongoing thing that Harrison Ford and Ridley Scott disagreed about very publicly for, you know, 30 years, 35 years. Um, That's why everyone probably questions it even more. Right, right. Cause, cause the reality is that there is not an answer to it. I mean, the, the, and the original, and, and this, see, this is the other thing that I'm sure we'll get to at some point, but there have been seven cuts of this film that have been released mm-hmm. in various, and, and then obviously, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of fan edits of it, you know, it's a very complicated movie that has shifted over time quite a bit. And if you look at the first cut of the movie, it's much more unambiguous, right? It seems like Deckard is clearly just a human. Um, and then in subsequent cuts, and especially in the final cut, which we you know think of as the de- the definitive one that came out in two thousand seven, um, it's there are plenty of clues as to him being a replicant. And but either way, it's never really answered. And to me, part of why Blade Runner is so powerful and part of why I don't get tired about talking about it is precisely because of things like the fact that that question is not answered. There is engineered ambiguity everywhere in the story. And I think that the story works best when as few questions as possible are answered, when it's as abstract as it can possibly be, because I think it becomes as universal as it is destined to be in that case. And I think part of why, you know, as Dan pointed out, I'm, I'm rereading to Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, and part of why I'm constantly thinking, God, this is not as good as I remembered it, even though it's a great book, is because it's not as unambiguous. I mean, Deckard struggles with whether or not he's a replicant in the book and gets a definitive answer about it, you know? Uh, I think if we'd had a moment like that in the film, it would probably make it a less powerful document. And I think the fact that he is wrestling with that question and does not get an answer allows us as the audience to wrestle with it internally and to ask ourselves, are we who we think we are? Um, and does it ultimately matter? So so to me, the answer is both he is and he isn't. And fundamentally, at the end of the day, that's what he is. He's both. Jamie, the founder of the podcast, what's your thoughts on this? Uh, I will um, pivot to something Rachel said uh, to Deckard. This is when she's in his apartment. Uh, I think it's the first time. And she'd been crying. Her makeup's kind of coming down her face. And she goes, have you ever taken that test yourself? And I think, for me, that's my answer. Because we have to all ask ourselves, are we human or are we not? And how do we, how do we know this? How do we know if we're human or we're not? We know because of our character. We know because of our empathy. And... Um, it was like her challenge. Like I, I, it's to me, I was also in that conversation. I don't know if it was in the same thread that you were Dan, but the same person asked that question in three different groups. And yes, a lot of people were like, can't you look at another, can't you go to another group and find or can't you just scroll down and look? And it's become a, a, a question where I think the films have moved past that. The question now might even be, was officer K human, despite us knowing he is a replicant legitimately did he become human um i think that the films and the story has moved past that question for me it doesn't matter even before 2049 i never cared not that i didn't care um but i also think that the character of deckard had the privilege of not even having to we're People ask that question, is he a replicant or not? He didn't, like, this was nothing he was struggling with. He didn't question himself. No, no, at no point in any of these films, except for maybe in 2049, where Neander Wallace was like, you know, was were, were you built or was it blah, blah, blah? Yes, no. Kind of leaving it ambiguous. This question was never posed about Deckard in these films. So I think it's just something that never crossed my mind. It didn't matter. What mattered to me is how was Decker treating other, other people? He shot two women in the back or, you know, 
well, he shot one woman. Well, I, no, I, he shot uh, Pris as well. Um, he shot two unarmed back, women. Though. I could say that. Two unarmed women, yeah, who are way stronger than him, so they were. A, yeah, a, a at that point, is, are they technically unarmed? It's like uh, we always make a joke <laughs> with me and my wife. So my wife is a third Don Black belt. Oh, wow. So she's legally registered with the government as a weapon. So if she ever were to get in a fist fight, she's legally registered as a weapon. And <laughs> that, like, qualification, right? That is and amazing. So, ass. That's really know, cool. Exactly, right? Which is why I will never mess with her. <laughs> <laughs> She can kick my ass like 10 ways to Sunday. It's not even like a competition. But it, it does come down to that when he is fighting the, you know, the replicants, technically they are weapons. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I think maybe that's true. But I think the the act of what he has done, he's killed people. For all intents and purposes, they are people. And he killed them because he's been conditioned to believe they are not people. Humans, Humans don't act that way. Well, it's like when wow. Rachel also questions him and goes, have you ever uh, shot a human by accident, right? Yeah, yeah. A non-replicant. And he goes, never, right? But it's like, you know, he still just would take pot shots. And to be honest, I watched him running through a crowded area just shooting, and I'm like, how has he not shot someone? Oh, yeah, it's so thick with people I know. There. Yeah, there's definitely been some misfires in that, in that crowd. I do have to say, though, um, <clears throat> I think that, well, so there's something problematic that's already happening in, in this, not this is a problematic conversation, but there's a terminology issue that comes up a lot when we talk about this that we trip over ourselves a lot is the difference between being a human and being a person, right? Ooh. So, like, there are specific species connotations to being a human, but in terms of agency and personhood, I think there's a very different question. So, like, so to me, the question um, of Officer K, for example, in 2049, which we're not going to really get into right now, of whether or not he's a human, I, I don't think is particularly what the point is to me, it's more about whether or not he should be counted as like a, as a person, which I think obviously he should because he conducts himself like we would think a, a good person would conduct themselves. Um, what's problematic I think with, with Deckard is that although he is outwardly human and he has all of the privileges that personhood affords a human on earth, um, he kills life forms that are engineered and that, as Jamie said, he's been conditioned to not think of as having personhood or agency, but he kills them. But he also is destroyed by that. And that's something I think a lot of people miss with Deckard. I'm not saying, Jamie, obviously I'm not saying you're missing this, but I think something that happens a lot of times, people forget that like he's a, an alcoholic, despondent Totally. Person. He's lost his humanity. He's been so right. conditioned. He's just right. kind of lost himself. That's where right. we meet him, how we meet him. And then you, and you see him, I mean, like when he when he finally gets Zora, spoiler alert, you know, he's not jubilant, right? He he looks miserable about it. You know, he's done his job and it is eating his soul. I mean, it's a it's a miracle he hasn't killed himself by the time we see him in, in the film. So I think it's it's just important to remember that although Decker does these things that we think are detestable and that are by any objective standard detestable, uh, he he is not happy about it. And he's functioning in a very different society than the one in which we function. And he's uh, you know, to go back to the Nazi analogy. There were Nazis that weren't bad, you know? Yeah. There were people in those camps that were helping people escape. There were Schindlers and things like that, you know? Um, maybe not, I could, maybe a stretch to say they weren't bad, but there, they, there, were, there were elements of humanity left in them. And I think Deckard is, is more that, right? He's sort of a human element in a system that was not set up to support that kind of a mentality. Patrick goes on record saying Nazis aren't bad. I just want to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want to clarify. <laughs> <laughs> Let's edit that in later. 
Hashtag MAGA. <laughs> so you, you're talking about a society. I actually wanted to get your guys' opinion. Are you big cyberpunk fans as well as being into Blade Runner? Or was this like Blade Runner is what you're a big fan of and cyberpunk is just part of that universe? Well, what does that mean, though? What is being, I mean, I know that this, it's cyberpunk is an aesthetic. So what's the question? That's um, what, well, it's more than just an aesthetic because there's, uh, as someone who was one of those goth kids, there's more of a mentality behind it, right? Um, of this idea of looking towards the future and the utopia that it's supposed to bring with it, right? But in most of the times, utopias also are dystopian, uh, especially when depicted in cyberpunk fiction and, you know, concepts. So my question is, are you a fan of the cyberpunk dystopian mentality of the future, or do you enjoy Blade Runner not because of that, but, you know, because of the other elements? Deep question. I would say <laughs> I enjoy the elements of cyberpunk as depicted in film. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we've seen it. I think it's only been done correctly twice, Blade Runner and Blade, Blade Runner, in terms of depicting the dystopian, the emotional dystopia, as, a, in, as well as the aesthetic of it. There's been a lot of, you know, we've seen whether it's Ghost in the Shell movie or, you know, or um, what's that movie? They did a remake recently with Colin Farrell. They, uh, with Total Recall? Total Recall that has elements of cyber of the cyberpunk aesthetic and also just kind of the world that they live in, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't. Are you are you asking me if like it's enjoyable? Um, I guess I'm one. I'm asking, do you enjoy the cyberpunk elements of it? Is that like an aesthetic that you enjoy in life as well, or is that just part of the Blade Runner universe to you? Like that's just where it's set, or is are you like a big fan of cyberpunk? Like of the scene, like are we seeing? Yeah. kind of a thing? No, uh, I think. People, but if you like the aesthetic, uh, I I do love the aesthetic, but most of the time I've seen it outside of Blade Runner, it's been pretty empty. It's okay. been great aesthetic without the real strong story to back it up. So when it's done right, I fucking love it. Mm -hmm. What about you, gents? Patrick, well, I'll, I'll go quick. Yeah, I, I mean, I think visually it's super fascinating, and, and I'm definitely attracted to that. Like, I'm I'm really excited about the cyberpunk game coming out, you know, to yes. consoles and PC. That's going to be amazing. Is that what it's called? 2077, yeah. yeah and, you know, I, I love, like, the worlds that William Gibson creates and things like that. But I it's I, I would I, I don't think from, like, a an aesthetic or a scene standpoint, it's something that I personally identify with, although I can appreciate it and, and I'm excited by it as, like, a storytelling device. But here's the thing. A lot of the time when you see cyberpunk depicted in, in fiction or in literature or in a film, it feels sort of like it's a tacked on shorthand for this is a dystopia, but there's cool people in it who like harness the power of that dystopia to, to like sort of thrive within it. Right. Mm -hmm. What's great about Blade Runner is that it almost it's almost Blade Runner feels like it hates itself. It feels like it is not like it it, it is so beautiful and it hates that it's so beautiful. So it tries to cover it up. It tries to like. It's like you can't quite see what you're looking at. Like it's everything's a little bit obscured. Everything's grimy. Everything does it doesn't look pristine and it doesn't look um, affected. And I think a lot of the time when cyberpunk gets shown, for example, in something like Altered Carbon, it looks sort of objectively beautiful. Like I, I can I can see the production design that went into it and I can appreciate it, but it doesn't feel like it is real. In or a real in. cyberpunk, yeah. right? And in a real cyberpunk environment. Um, 
these constructs and these you know flying cars and the and the you know people having these biomechanical add-ons that's not coming about because of like you know we are a happy society where everybody has access to money and everybody's well adjusted and you have rich people all over the place flaunting their wealth it comes about as a result of um you know in blade runner of the world is fucking collapsing and we need to get people to live in gigantic cities or else you know cuz there's no land left and there's no arable farmland and so you know you have to have these huge aggregates and when you do that you end up screwing all these cultures together forcibly into something where nobody knows what anybody else is saying and you have these huge metropolises spring up where nobody can communicate and it looks like a mess but within that you have tremendous innovation because all of a sudden you have these brilliant minds from around the world coming together and being forced to collaborate in a shared environment and things can spiral out forced to survive collaboration just literally to survive right um, and so I think that there's something fascinating about how the beauty is sort of wrenched from the earth in Blade Runner as opposed to being tacked on from above. Ooh, interesting. All right, Dan. Good. You guys are a hard act to follow. Um, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll disagree slightly with something Jamie said where he said that Blade Runner or the two Blade Runner films are the only time he's seen it done correctly. And so, I, and Jamie, you might actually agree with what I'm saying, but we'll see. Well, I would just say, I would just say, the, it's really the only times that I've been emotionally affected where the world, because this, the cyberpunk dystopia is, it's not this fun thing. People don't, people are, it's suffering, really. It's almost nihilistic. Yeah, it's not like this. I mean, it looks pretty, I guess, but it's not a pretty way. To, like, like Patrick was saying, it's it's this thing that almost hates itself. These people are barely surviving in this misery. Right. So. Um, Whereas a lot of people just think, oh, cyberpunk is cool. It's not cool, you know? Well, Sorry. What, what I was going to say, though, is that, and I think I'm also describing your sentiment, but what I would say about Blade Runner specifically as opposed to other cyberpunk stories like Akira and, you know, and then it depends on where you meet that definition in terms of post-apocalyptic dystopia, like the future scenes from the original Terminator, for example. I don't know. I don't think that maybe doesn't qualify as cyberpunk specifically, but we're talking about dystopian sci-fi to make it a little broader. Blade Runner, especially the first one, was the best example of, I think, where the visuals in terms of what we just described, all this griminess, but beauty at the same time, match the emotional feel of the movie on like just the exact right level where what you feel and what the characters are feeling is matched in what the world looks like and what you feel it must be like physically to live in that world every day. It's depressing. It drives you to drink or use some kind of substance. Um, I think a good example would be maybe the Dread remake. I am the law. Oh, I fucking love that movie. I love it too. But in terms of, you know, being driven mm-hmm. to sort of do Amazing. substances and be in this gross, grimy environment. Slow-mo. Where you're, yeah, where you're trying to survive and trying, you know, and all that. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what Blade Runner does really well. And just like many other things about the film, some of it, and not to not give credit to Ridley Scott and Turnbull and all the people that were involved, because obviously they were amazing. They're just, but there is something beyond them. I don't, I'm not going to call it luck, but I'm just going to, something happened. The timing of it was just right. Where even things that are connected to the eighties, right? When the film was made physically, the big CRT screens and the analog keyboards and all this stuff that it's, 
in other films, they become dated. When you look at them later, you're like, this is so obviously the future of the 1980s. And it's like, we didn't do that. We got away from CRTs. We don't have that shit anymore. That's not how technology advanced, right? You see a clash between the real future, which is now, we're in 2019, and the future depicted in 1982. In Blade Runner- which In Blade Runner, I'm pretty sure they're depicting 2020. No, 2019. It's November it? 2019, so I oh, think right, right. it's right at the beginning. Really I was close. going off the fact that when they were like talking to the replicants, they're like, oh, we're only able to live for four years, and I was born in 2017. I'm like, well, math says. Right, yeah. Um, I, I think Roy, because Roy is the only replicant we see expire through the course of the story, I think you could actually calculate the exact time of his death based on that because it shows his incept date. But nonetheless, it happens, yeah, very end of 2019 in November as it opens up and possibly just a little bit into 2020. But again, my point is when you see those things on the screen, at least my first reaction isn't, oh, that's super dated. Oh, we never went into that type of technology. It's like a parallel universe where it all works so perfectly and the oppression is just everywhere you know and 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 again deckard being a cypher i think you also view the film from the point of view of this depressed alcoholic who hates himself and hates his job and and etc cetera, etc cetera. um so i think that's relatable right <laughs> sure <laughs> but i think hate the job yeah but that's i think the thing that it does so well in terms of cyberpunk um mm. other movies do the visuals really well but the aesthetic doesn't necessarily match what you're feeling uh, all the time. Um, so that would be my comment on that. And yes, I, I do love cyberpunk in general. Um. Something that I would say in, of all of the other things that I've seen that have tried to do what Blade Runner did in terms of world building and forging an aesthetic that felt like it couldn't exist in any other form than it exists on the screen, I think is the original Bioshock game. To me, I feel like that is it because it is something that's like so it's so overwhelmingly beautiful. It's an Art Deco environment mm -hmm. at the bottom of the ocean. Um, and it's something that like just looks like nothing else and you can never get it out of a dream about Rapture, the, the the city. You know, it's it's one of the most beautiful things that I've ever seen. And yet it is horrifying. It is like actually horrifying. And it is just degraded and it looks like that because it's actually stuck at a point in time because of terrible events that happen. And so the whole time you're walking around this under underwater city, you're like in awe of how beautiful it is and also just amazed at how much you would never, ever, ever want to end up there. And when I see Los Angeles in 2019 in Blade Runner, I think I am so glad I'm not there, but I'm so glad I can observe it because what has happened is out of this misery has come this beauty that exists once in a millennia, you know? Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting also about Blade Runner, you're talking about like the fact that it looks futuristic. You know, I know they were depicting 2019, but realistically, even watching this recently, I go, this still looks like a future we could one day hit. Like just technologically wise, even though it's a movie made in the 80s, it's like, it just feels like one day we might hit that. And even then what they predicted in the 80s in this movie and some of the technology and how we're advancing towards it now is actually freaky because they have like video calls and like stuff like that in this and it's like i i can see that happening and the fact that like even the and at one point he pays for something just using dna and we're fucking heading towards that goddamn now too people are using their fingerprints to be able to pay for shit and this is like the world that we're actually moving towards and so it's interesting to see a movie made in like 1982 or i guess released in 82 made in 81 you know hit on the head where our technology is actually going. Yeah, they may not have predicted the dates right, but I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, 10, 20 years from now, 
we would see stuff similar to what's in Blade Runner than like the Jetsons. Yeah, and I, I think uh, in, in terms of things they're predicting correctly, albeit on maybe an accelerated timeline, we're not there yet, is the extinction of animals. I think we're seeing animal species going extinct left and right, and that's only unless we make huge changes, um, we're, they're predicting that that trend is going to continue. And in 30, 40 years from now, we may very well be in a world that's where we're, we're trying to save the last members of not just, you know, a specific black rhino or something that's endangered, but like more mundane things. Bees are, are, are going extinct. I mean, or, or at least are, are endangered now. I mean, there's a lot of that is really happening. Do you like our owl? It's artificial. Of course it is. Must be expensive. Very. Well, and then you have some of the more obvious things like uh, brothels being opened up with um, robotic women. Yep. The um, there was one are definitely working on. Well, that they're one. doing that, but there's one that was planned for Texas of all places, and the town voted against it, or they put some like. They blocked it. For, they're just still working on it. But people were worried. Like they're almost worried about the the robots. Like, what are they doing? To, like, it's very interesting. It's a very um, uh, it's a very complex conversation. Oh, yeah. But people were so horrified at that thought that men were going to go in and sleep with these robotic women. I, it's just through. It's it's an amazing place to. An amazing, not in a good way, but it's 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 an amazing place to be that we're having these discussions about the ethics of having sex with a robot. Oh, you, you can know? even go to the child sex robot market and go even deeper into the ethics and have that conversation, which is crazy fascinating and disturbing. The what? Have you not it's, heard of this? Yeah, well, that's a child about. sex robot? So the, I don't know that don't this Google is... It. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if this is the appropriate episode to have like a long form of discussion, but I actually find this fascinating because as as a society and this argument is out there online. So they have and there is a market for childlike and like realistic looking sex dolls and sex robots. I don't, I don't know how far the capabilities go in terms of what they can do, but you know what the use is for. And the market is arguably for if not straight pedophiles, people that are curious, you know, about having sex with children, <laughs> Who right? Be curious about having sex with a child is not a pedophile. Yeah, yeah, I meant like people who have actively done that or people yeah. who haven't, but they want to act on it and they're going to go buy this. That's what I'm using it as a deterrent. Well, yeah. no, no, no. Yeah. That's the next that's the next part of the conversation. The moral conversation that's happening around that, because people's initial reaction is to be disgusted, right? They're like, what? We're encouraging pedophilia. We're making this is this is wrong. This is immoral. Like already certain states in the U.S. have outlawed these dolls before they've even gone into exportation because they're so afraid of it. There is a legitimate argument um, that psychologists are bringing up. And the argument is, is are, if you allow people the use of these dolls, are you encouraging pedophilia because these people are going to overcome the doll and say this isn't good enough i want the real thing and they're going to go abduct a child or are you giving them an outlet because you can you know if it's considered a disease or considered a mental issue or whatever are you giving them an outlet where essentially it's no different than having sex with a couch or whatever something that's not human shaped right like in in, in the end it's a piece of plastic um, are you deterring them from actually going after children because you're giving them an outlet i've seen that conversation online 
I think if you step away from the fact that obviously we're all being normal people, we're disgusted with the idea of having sex with a child. Patrick has children. Um, it's from a moral perspective. I think it's a really interesting question to actually do the research and get to the bottom of what that does for society. Is it a net good or is it a net bad? So again, we've probably gone off on a tangent, but I find that conversation really fascinating. Well, I mean, that's sort of, that's sort of like the uh, conversation and it, you know, you go down to the fact that there's the, um, the one guy, uh, JF, I think his name is, Mm um, he, you know, what he has running around, they're technically midgets, but if you really think about it, he's making these little humanoid dolls. I make friends. They're toys. My friends are toys. I make them. It's a hobby. I'm a genetic designer. Do you know what that is? And they're just running around his place in Blade Runner. So it's like this concept isn't actually far off the mark because this is actually a part of what is in the movie. And the question, you know, that you're you're proposing, I honestly have this kind of mentality that if you ban things, you're just making it worse. It's why prohibition didn't work, you know, way back in the day when you banned alcohol. It's why, you know, we don't see the crazy world that's uh, depicted in a handmaid's or handmaid's tale, right? Like we don't live in those societies. And the reason is, is because when you ban things, you just essentially make people want it more, you know, whereas if you, and I know this is going to sound terrible, not normalize it, but if you try to treat the problems versus like, you know, banning the problems, the problems are going to get exponentially worse, you know? And I think even if you want to take it down to marijuana, uh, you know, Canada legalized recently and we're seeing like massive net profits from it, as well as like, there's a whole bunch of other things like that, you know, there was one big day where it was legalized and everyone went all nuts, but like afterwards it's kind of mellow. People don't really care. You can smoke in your home. It just means there's less money going towards the police trying to bring down people who are just dealing weed. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things where we're actually seeing profits because the governments are able to tax it and we're not, we're seeing less dealers and like all sorts of weird little things like that. But when you take something that, has been banned. When you ban something, people want to find it. And that's how organized crime happens. And that's why you see all these child pornography rings, which are ultimately worse. Whereas if you were to take a piece of plastic, and it is an interesting argument, like what's the norm there? And I kind of, I kind of sit here and I go, and my personal belief is I don't believe we should ban things. Like I think we should embrace things as weird as that sounds when we're talking about this, but not embrace it, but embrace the idea that somebody might have an issue and needs a way to deal with it. And, you know, if they have this issue and they feel ashamed about it, they're less likely to actually go out and deal with it. Whereas if you make it that we can actually talk about this, you know, mental illness is still something people don't talk about, but it can definitely be along those lines in the same idea of people could go seek help earlier rather than feeling ashamed. Right. It's a difference between treating something as a criminal problem as opposed to a medical problem. But again, I think for all those arguments, and you brought up a lot of interesting parallels, this is probably currently the most polarizing most extreme example of it because people's natural reaction is to go absolutely not get that away from me like that's a net terrible thing for society there is no Mm -hmm. argument where and and so people get really emotional about it rightfully so but i think it's still an interesting conversation and since you brought up jf there is a smaller group of blade runner fans um, and i've had plenty of conversations with them about this who actually think that JF is building up, he's built a bunch of sex dolls. Um, one of the main points of evidence is that in the scene where he falls asleep in his chair and there's like those white rats crawling around and the, um, it's the Kaiser, right? With the long nose. That's the yeah. character. Yeah. Is sitting there. Um, With a ball gag in his mouth. 
He has a ball gag in his mouth. And when JF touches him, not when he looks at Pris, which would arguably be the simpler part of the story of why he's shaking and he looks scared is because Pris is there and she's dangerous, etc. But if you really pay attention, their argument is, no, he starts shaking when JF touches his shoulder lapel. He's freaked out by JF. And it's showing um, behavior of someone who's been abused. In this case, they're suggesting sexually abused, which is super interesting from a minor character who uh, until recently, I'd never really looked at him or that scene that way. But again, it just shows you how much is in the layers and the background of this movie that isn't even in the main conversations. All right, so let's get off uh, these super deep, dark conversations. (laughs) (laughs) It's time for us to play The Price is Right. So the way that this works is uh, prices right rules. I'm gonna have a bunch of numeric categories similar to the first category or first game. I'm gonna have you guys try to guess numeric values. Um, I'm gonna give you a topic. You guys can try and guess it, and whoever gets closest without going over gets the point. Uh, oh, if you guys are all over, I'll let you know and we'll start again. And if you manage to somehow get it bang on, you get double points. All right. So uh, Patrick, you won the first game, so you know that means you get to start which kind of puts you at a disadvantage here. So the first category for The Price is Right is the budget. So what do you think the budget for the original Blade Runner is? The shooting budget for it? Yes. $12 million. We got a 12 All right, Dan. Let's see. Uh, and in this case, we are talking about, when you say shooting, Patrick, you're talking about the original budget before they started going over budget, right? What was originally put out? Um, what the estimated final budget is. Sorry. Oh, the estimated okay, because there was an original so budget. Sorry, Patrick, okay, does that change that? Okay. It does change Patrick's answer, I believe. Yeah. Well, uh, so well the the well, I'll give it away if I say. Well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna stay I'm gonna stay with twelve. Right, you're gonna stay with twelve, Dan. Okay. Uh, I think I happen to actually know this. Uh, Nineteen. Nineteen. All right, Jamie. Uh, well. You stole my answer. I was going to say about 18 or 19 myself. You guys are oh, actually really good there. So, uh, you know, let, let me know what you think there. You're, you're saying 18 or 19? Yeah, okay. final. Um, well, I'll give the point to Dan here. It was actually 28. Whoa. 28? 28 wow. mil. That's surprising. Oh, my God. Right? When I go to pull the numbers, that's what it is without inflation. It was a uh, $28 million estimated by the I end. I could have wow. sworn it was like set at 11 and they went way over at 19. Wow, I'm surprised. Yeah, they went way over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they really. definitely did. All right, so uh, next category here is what do you guys think made in domestic box office? Dan, you're starting now. Oh, man, this is such a good movie to do this for because it's so hard. Um, domestic box office, so its entire run in theaters in the in US. the theatrical run. Theatrical right, run. This right. doesn't include the numbers from when it got re-released with the director's cut in 2007 or the right. final cut. And it's not like North America. It's just the United States. Uh, technically, when I pull these numbers, it is North America, so it does include Canada. Ooh, okay. But not mm-hmm. Mexico. It's good detail to know. Uh, there's a few of you up there. Um, 36 million, right? Yeah, sure. About that. <laughs> I, think I think I just looked that up. Let's see. I don't um, know why. This is tough. I'm gonna go. I actually don't know the population of Canada. To be honest. I'm gonna go with four and a half million. Final U.S. Final U.S. But final U.S. box office. That's what you're asking, right? Final U.S. box office. Okay. But it includes final North American. Right. It yeah. Includes yeah. yeah. North American. It does include Canada. So this is what it made in its entire box office run. So Dan, you're saying four mil. Four and a half. Four and a half. Four point five mil. 
Jamie? Do you think he's high? Do you think he's low? Well, I know this number. It's 33.8. 33.8. All right. Uh, I'm going to say 33.75. <laughs> well, the numbers I pulled is actually 32.8, not 33.8. So Dan takes the point on that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, I know this number. It's 33.8. Like that, That's right. fact. I mean, I, but... But if you go around to different sites, they all kind of vary a little bit. Mm-hmm. Some will say a million more. Some will say a million We're less. Some will say three million more. This. Okay, hold on. But more importantly, because now I'm really confused, and I've read, you know, Future Noir and everything. Four million. Where the fuck is your problem? Well, <laughs> million dollars? What the fuck, Dan? Wasn't Blade Runner a gigantic financial flop? That's, That's what I've always read. Flop. Well, if the budget was 28 and it was the 33, they actually made money. I didn't realize the movie made money in its initial yeah, theatrical. Yeah, it's a flop if it doesn't make double its budget. Okay. Fair enough. So, like, a movie's considered a flop even if it, you know, gets only a million-dollar revenue, right? I gotta so go like, scratch out uh, Expert from the front of my Blade Runner business card. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you're actually not bad on that point because technically its net gain is 4.8. Right, so if you take its budget, what it, it cost to make, and then what it made in the theaters, it only made four point eight million. Right, technically, that's only a coincidence. That's after advertising though. too. <laughs> it makes me sound better by coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> You're really close. All right, so uh, Dan, Dan the, point. the numbers I pulled, you've got uh, you've got two points here. You're you're in the lead. Next up is what do you guys think it made opening weekend, knowing its total box office run from what I've pulled from the site that I went to was thirty two point eight. Uh, what do you guys think it made opening weekend? And Jamie, you're starting us. So do you know this one? I don't know this one. Um, this is 82. So I say it made 6 million the first weekend. That's probably an overestimation too. All right. Jamie says 6 mil. I'm going to say 1.125 million. 1.125. All right. I think Patrick is going to get this, but just to prove a point, I'm going to say 4.5 million. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, actually jamie gets it it was 6.15 hey nice it did well it did better than i think we give it credit I, for in this theater. movie it's gets shit, shit on all the time and it made great it's money. Of ET. If, if et hadn't come out in 1982 that's true we would this would be a very different conversation 1982 was a crazy year for movie releases the thing there's like so many oh my god mosquito coast uh so i actually am moving on to the next category here which is, what do you guys think the Rotten Tomato ratings are? So, Jamie, you started off last time, so Patrick, you're going to start off this round. I'd like to clarify, though, since Rotten Tomatoes didn't exist back then, right? It certainly wasn't on a website, obviously. Are we talking, mm. Are we talking? Uh, like, right now? What is the Rotten Tomatoes score? Blake? Yeah, so yeah. when I go and pull it, one of the fun facts about Rotten Tomatoes is it actually has a critic rating and an audience rating, right? Right. So the critic rating, it actually will pull all the ratings from the newspapers at the times when they were rating it. Because oh. there's been ratings for years. So the critic rating actually goes back that far, whereas the audience rating is actually current and up to date. Okay. Okay. Of people, you know, the users, right? Like the way those algorithms work are actually fairly interesting because technically users can either give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down, and then it figures out the percentage of thumbs up versus thumbs down, right? Oh. Whereas uh, critic ratings, and the reason they're more accurate is because critics actually give it a rating out of 10, and then it averages the critic rating. Interesting. All right. All right. So I'm first. 
You bet. You're first. What do you think the critic rating uh, was? I Rock believe Tomatoes. 2049 was 88, and I believe 2019 was 93. All right. So 93%. Final answer. 93%. 93%. All right, Dan. Current uh, leader. Definitely sounds accurate. Uh, do they do uh, decimals on uh, Rotten Tomatoes? Scores? No, they don't. It's just a flat Whole percentage. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, have you yeah. never been on Rotten Tomatoes? But I feel like I, feel like I have. So no, I have. Much. I just I don't pay that close. Dan doesn't even post through our Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> it's the shit on Dan Ooh, hour. Shit. <laughs> I quit the podcast. Um, I'm gonna go ninety. I'm gonna go ninety four. Ninety four. All right. Final one here, Jamie. What do you think? Ninety. Ninety. Nine zero. Yep. Ooh. Well, you get it bang on, Jamie. Nice. So, uh, double points for that one. Wow. Holy Which shit. Which means you just jumped into the lead. Dude, I'm learning so <laughs> much about everything right now. <laughs> All right, final question. Dan, you're starting us. What do you think the audience rating and percentage is, knowing that critics gave this a 9-0? What do you think the audience is? That's hard. <sighs> That's real hard. Social media, people hate everything. 94. You're going 94 twice? All right, all right. Jamie, current leader, what do you think? Can we call him dear leader instead? I'm going to say, <laughs> I'm gonna say like 76. 76? Ooh, you think the audience don't like it? Uh, I, well, I just think it's complicated. And complicated for regular audiences are like, oh, this is weird. I don't want, I don't know. I'll give it a three. Oh, you know? man. You think on Facebook, the audience would say it's complicated with uh, Blade Runner. In this relationship status, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, be a little Avril Lavigne gift. I'm, uh, I'm gonna say 83 percent. 83. Well, Patrick, you actually get it. It's actually 91 percent. Wow, look at right? that. 90 and 91. Interesting. Right. I, I was like, that's a really damn close. Oh, because you uh, can't go over. Is that why he gets it? <laughs> yeah, you can't go over. <laughs> Son of a. It's right, 4.5 million. Right rules. Did you not grow up with Bob Barker on Tech Days? I did, I did, I did. Dan's like, did they use decimal points in that? Because <laughs> the metric system? Metric <laughs> Canada, right? <laughs> but technically, uh, Jamie, you did win this round. You got three points uh, because you got that bang on critic rating one there. So you're you technically would have the pretty pretty princess crown right now. You just uh, stole it from Patrick. Finally. <laughs> Damn you! You got right. a stranger. <laughs> Did you say you're going to give him a stranger? Because that's just a little kinky. Huh? I said you, you, <laughs> that's what I call him. It's Jamie's favorite move. No, I said you got to be a stranger. It's a quote from 2049. Ah, all right, all right. Fair enough. All right, so uh, now back talking to Blade Runner, aside from the numbers, which I just, when I was pulling these, I was actually surprised at some of them. What do you guys think about the direction style that Ridley Scott did with this and the fact that his original cut for this was four hours? I don't know if you guys have found that fact or not, because I did today. And I was like, oh. That's, it was an edit. It was original edit that was four hours. It was never Sorry, intended edit. to release that long. He was never intending to release that. Well, that's um, the one he showed the crew, apparently. Yeah, yeah. But it's also like, like, noting that a lot of the time, that's the case. I mean, 2049 had a had a, a first cut that was That was four hours. Yep. Four hours or something. And yep. I think a lot, a lot of movies, because they incorporate dailies footage and they incorporate all sorts of shit that doesn't make it on, but that kind of tells the full scope of the story, and then they, and then they cut it down. That being said, obviously, um, 
there that not every movie is going to have you know like you've got mail is not going to have a four hour first cut you know <laughs> i'm so surprised like, it had the hour and a half cut it does have yeah <laughs> like the concept got a little a little old um i i can i can start with this i, I think um part of part of why blade runner works so well and and part of why I'm so surprised that the audience rating is as high as it is is because it is a really slow movie mm-hmm. by I think any any standard you know like one of, one of my favorite sort of infographics um, has every shot of the film on a grid and they do that for like for some for some for different movies have you seen this before so it shows how many shots are in a given movie and you look at like you know for example like the Star Trek remake which I fucking hate um, sorry I know you guys I know Jamie likes the movie that has something like 25,000 shots on the grid. Um, and you look at something like 2001 A Space Odyssey, and there's like 700 or something. And Blade Runner, to me, would be much closer to that first end of the spectrum. You can actually like track the film through and see the color palette changing and things like that. So my point being, um, Ridley Scott is such a visual filmmaker, and he's such a specifically geometrically gifted compositional visual stylist that I think the deliberateness of the way that he shot gives the movie this very painterly quality that reminds me um, a lot of filmmakers like Antonioni, you know, who use these really careful compositions and they just sort of set the camera up and it happen in that space and they don't kind of like cut too much. Um, and I think that that's part of why we feel like it's almost like cinema verite like it's real which is crazy because it and you know it's a it's a high fantasy movie it's not 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 literal high high fantasy like dragons but in terms of like it's a really high concept movie right Mm. but it feels like we're a fly on the wall watching something really unfolding like a documentary sometimes and i think it's partly because you're not aware of the camera as this dexterous instrument you know it's not there's no huge tracking shots there's no big showy things going on it's just really careful composition um, and I think that's like from a visual standpoint, Ridley Scott's influence wholeheartedly. And um, Jordan, I'll, I'll let the other guys has, has to take some credit for that as well. I mean, not not in direction, but certainly in terms of composition and and right. input on what lenses to use, et cetera, et cetera. You know. Oh, totally. But but you know, but but Ridley Scott, as as you guys all know, is uh, is, is there with the eyepiece the whole time and, and maps it out, and also does the storyboards and the Ridley Grams and things like that, and you know. It's it's impossible. I mean, Cronoweth obviously was a genius, and the cinematography in the film is maybe the best of all time uh, in any movie. Um, but I do think Ridley Scott as a as a stylist is really huge. But what's interesting with Ridley Scott, and I'm gonna I'm gonna kick this off maybe to Jamie next because he's a, a real expert with character. Um, what's interesting with Ridley Scott is that you don't think of him as a character driven director, right? He's been very hands off with his casts a lot of he kind of like lets them do their own thing um while he shoots it from a million angles you know um he doesn't give like very much direct character input allegedly or at least he used to not but what's amazing is that within that space you have a film like alien which has maybe the most memorable ensemble cast of any movie i can think of outside of like you know Reservoir Dogs, <laughs> right behind your head. That's another great ensemble cast film. Like, I mean, the, the the ensemble that's on the Nostromo is like one of the best ever made, one of the most believable, you know. And I think um, similarly, you have a movie like Blade Runner, which has, you know, it, like Roy Batty. It has Deckard. It has these uh, Rachel. It has these archetypal characters that have become um, like cultural symbols around the world because they're so believable. And I think um, interesting facet where like. 
he is not just this cerebral stylist. He's very character-driven, but not as outwardly as some other people might might be. That's deep, Jamie. Uh, can you reframe reframe the question again? Uh, so I wanted to get your take on really Scott as the director of this and his influence into the film. Like, yeah, well, I would say that uh, the Ridley Scott who made that film back in the 80s, and he's, of course, just off the heels of Alien, uh, was a master craftsman. I mean, I think it was in the right hands. He was methodical and patient. Um, it just wasn't in the, the decisions that he was making for the edit. It was also in... Um, how he let his actors breathe, how he let his characters breathe, how they would take up their space. They would kind of, they would inhabit their space. He's not the same director now. He just isn't. He's just a boom, 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 edit, edit, move, move, move. He just, he's not the same kind of guy anymore. He just, he's, uh, film has become commerce. Back then, film was more art for him. It was more of a, uh, it was more of a, uh, a they were think pieces. They were, uh, I think he's a, an incredibly intelligent man. I think that's probably why he comes off as a, a little bit incoherent. He's probably a little bit lost in his own machinations of what's going on in his head and everything. And I just think uh, every decision he, he made, you know, I know it was tough. It was struggle for him to make uh, 2019, but that's really when the best art is born typically is through struggle. So I think it was in perfect hands. Fair enough. And what do you think about uh, Ridley Scott and his artistic flair to the movie Blade Runner? Yeah, uh, I mean, the thing that, that um, resonates with me the most is that he's a very different director now than he was back then, what Jamie said. Um, and I think, yeah, in a similar way to Kubrick, um, I actually just listened to a really good episode on Eyes Wide Shut, and they talk about Nicole Kidman and, and Tom Cruise talk about just how much they were broken down by Kubrick in terms of, you know, shooting the same scene literally a hundred times um, to the point where Tom Cruise says he got an ulcer filming that film and they all wanted to please this great director. Right. So there's some similarities in the way Kubrick shoots. I think both Ridley Scott and Kubrick are famous for like, even on old school film when it wasn't digital on filming something, doing a hundred takes of the same scene. But, yeah. and, I, and I think when you talk to the actors or, or read interviews, um, like some of Paul Salmon's interviews with the original actors, the main theme that comes back is oppressive. Like that movie sucked to work on. Ridley was always, he's just such a perfectionist. Everything was like starting to mold because there was so much fog and so much dampness and rain everywhere. And like, it was a terrible movie to be a part of. There were rebellions by the American uh, crew um, to this British director who wasn't that well known because, you know, he was so hard on everyone. But I think in a lot of ways, actors look back with people like Ridley, with directors like Ridley Scott and Kubrick, and you often hear the same story. It really sucked filming that. It was really hard. He got the best performance out of me that any director has ever gotten. And so I think Ridley Scott is up there in the top three or top five masters at his craft, especially in this time period. Now I find that his best works are when he's in the like production side of the house as opposed to directing. I think he does really well with a great director under him um, and being more in charge of the big picture and big decisions. But nonetheless, at the time, being a younger director with a lot of commercials and a lot of, um, you know, financial success under his belt, um, 
he was in the position not just to push the crew and the actors to not perfection, but you know, to the best they could possibly do, but also to fight back against the studios who had they had their way would have made a much shittier movie because they were trying to cut and he was using too much film and it was costing too much. And he got fired even at, at one point in the production, but they had to take him back because they were like, well, no one else can put this together. No one else is going to finish this movie. So it's just sometimes things work out the same way we can talk about when we talk about 2049, that Denis Villeneuve was the perfect person to direct that film under Ridley Scott's recommendation. Ridley Scott was just in the right place at the right time, doing the right work with the right people. And it was just something that was meant to be. No, that's fair. Um, you know, we talked a little bit, you guys touched on in there about the character development. What do you think about the character development in this? You know, you bring up aliens as like an ensemble cast, but what do you think about how the characters develop throughout this? You know, we touched a little bit earlier about how, you know, is Deckard human or not? And like the humanity there, but there's a lot more going on with all, like the side characters and all of the, uh, you know, uh, replicants throughout the film. What do you guys think about that? Jamie, do you want to start us off on this one? Yeah, well, um, just kind of to reference what I said earlier, I think um, Ridley Scott really allowed the characters to breathe. But really, the the I would say the birth of the characters was really Hampton Fancher. You know, the writer is really who gave those characters life, and uh, it just worked in a way with with Ridley Scott's direction that the brilliance of that script and the patience of the director really combined to make the characters that felt very real. Um, even though we're in this future, Rachel feels real. She feels like this real living person. That's been a part of my life since I've seen the film. Um, I, I just, you, you there, of course it's very different characters than alien. It, it's different settings. It's for, it's, it's right away. It's, it's this, it's, bigger philosophical questions that are being asked that they're asking that Roy Batty is asking. Um, if anything, if anyone, um, I would say, I mean, I don't think that there's any weak character in the film. I think it was just, uh, it was all, um, just this, this perfect cocktail of the, like you're saying the right director at the right time with the right script. And he, you know, it was struggle and there was pushback and there was all of these things, but they knew what they were doing. Uh, maybe most of the time they did. Sometimes they probably say, we don't know what we're doing. We hope we know this is kind of a mess. A lot of people didn't even know who we were working on it. Like, what is this movie? And a lot of people were like, we don't know. He's doing this movie. But he knew what he was doing. He had a vision. Ridley Scott had a, an incredible vision. And it made um, some of the most iconic characters in film history. So I don't, there's not, that's about all I can say. I mean, the writing's on the wall. I also think I, I think the movie is really defined by the, the trajectories of Rachel and Deckard as characters, and I, I think that their motion towards humanity or, or towards you know towards what we think of as humanity from two different angles is sort of what defines the movie in a lot of ways because you have Rachel who has her perception of the world ripped out from under her, and then she has to rebuild herself basically, and then you have Deckard who, as a result of interactions with Rachel and especially with Roy Batty goes through basically the same thing, a traumatic awakening experience, you know? So Rachel has undergoes this traumatic awakening as a replicant, and Deckard undergoes this traumatic awakening as a, as basically a human who had been asleep and not didn't realize it. And I think that that, um, 
the momentum of those two journeys as characters really carries the movie. And I think all of the other, it's interesting. There is a lot of staticness going on, stasis going on with the other characters. Like, you know, like Leon doesn't go through this crazy journey, you know, in a lot of ways, Batty doesn't, um, Pris doesn't. A lot of the people that we kind of, you know, see fan art of and that we think of as great characters, like they're not really heading anywhere, but their stasis allows the two really intense emotional journeys to happen in a framework that feels set up to support them. But in my, in my opinion, Roy Batty is, is, is my favorite character by far. Um, and uh, is one of my favorite characters in any film ever. And I think part of what is so from a character standpoint, fascinating about him is how atypical he is in so many ways, you know, how you see him, he's presented as this, basically this perfect, beautiful warrior, you know, um, who has escaped Mars and is wreaking havoc on Earth. And it, you're set up, you, you see Rucker Hauer in that role, and you're just set up with these preconceptions of what this character represents. And then it's just those, those, those preconceptions are constantly flayed away by the way that that character interacts with his environment and with the people in it. And the ultimate, and ultimately, the the you know villainous the villainous character in this thing is the actual hero because we def- end up defining heroism in Blade Runner as finding humanity, you know, and finding a purpose to to wake up and go to work every day, finding a reason outside of this external environment to reawaken yourself internally and engage with life again. And Roy, who is for all intents and purposes the villain, is the one who's aware of that and the one who traumatically forces Deckard to wake up hard act to follow there Dan. (laughs) Uh, it always is yeah going last in this group is uh not uh the easiest thing to do um well and uh, of course i will uh i'll echo what jamie and patrick said i think to put it simply in a way that maybe they didn't state um what makes for a great and interesting character in a story in general is complexity right? At least as your primary and secondary characters. Like, yeah, a one or two note character can serve a purpose in a story, usually in terms of how they're relating to one of the main characters, right? Like it can help you discover something about the main character to deal with a unimportant, non-complex character in the film. But I would actually disagree with Patrick just a little bit in terms of um, the static quality of the secondary characters. Um, I think if anything, I I, I think it's just the amount of screen time and script time that they have that doesn't let you get into some of the complexities of the other characters, but it's there. It's like looking into a pool that gets darker and darker the deeper you go and you can't see what's at the bottom. You only really see what's at the surface. Like Leon's a good example. I think Leon is ostensibly, we can talk about Roy. Roy's a very complex character, but that being the most obvious one, let me bring up Leon. Leon is ostensibly brought up as this like kind of dumb as a rock, not dumb as a rock because replicants are kind of smart, but on the dumber side for a replicant and a laborer. He can lift, you know, 400 pound atomic loads all day. He's super strong. He can be really violent and it almost makes you feel like he's a one tone character, but then you see, well, in, in the opening scene of the film, when he's being interrogated by Holden, it's very subtle, but you can watch him fuck with Holden. He's like being sarcastic and he's trying to not let Holden read him in the way he's responding to the questions, which is a subtle and intelligent thing to do in the way that he's, it's so important to him to get his photos 
that he's going to risk being caught in some versions of the movie that were cut out later. He's in that apartment hiding when Deckard goes through. So he risked death literally to go get those photos, his memories that were so important to him. Um, and this happens with him and it happens with the other replicants. The way the actors chose to portray their emotional um, immaturity, not that they're not immaturity in the sense that they're immature in the sense that they are uh, not fully framed and not complete humans in terms of emotions. And they've only been around for a couple of years. And so you see those complexities, especially in Roy's reactions, but even in Leon's where you see a smile when you normally wouldn't see someone smiling in that situation, where you see someone on the verge of tears and you don't understand why. And it's because they don't really understand how human emotion works. So for me to wrap my concept up, for me, what makes the characters beautiful is how complex and interesting they are, especially for what you can think about and discuss beyond what you see in the movie. I think with Deckard, with Rachel, with Roy, the principal characters, you do see a lot of that complexity and the arc that Patrick's talking about in the characters. But I think there's a lot to even the secondary characters that is left kind of to the imagination, but it's there. Yeah, let, let, let me clarify. I see tons of complexity in those okay. characters, but it's I'm, I'm talking about the narrative thrust in terms of a journey that they're on. I, I like what what I think helps a little bit is that they're kind of not like like it's easy to perceive them as kind of like this is who they are and what they're doing, right. and they're not going through the sort of emotional transformations that the main characters right. are going through. And I think that's so when I say like setting up a grid for character development, that's kind of what that's kind of what I mean. Okay. I totally agree, and I think Leon is another great example of a character who is so much more than you think he is when you first see him, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I, it's a brilliant role, too. Yeah. All right, so uh, just because of all the technical difficulties we've been going on here, I think it's time I jump to the final game here, and then we can uh, get into the wrap-up, uh, or what I usually do for wrap-up, because we've had some pretty in-depth, uh, heavy conversation about Blade Runner, which I think it actually really inspires. Um, so it's time for the final game. It's time for the Awesome Lodge word game. So the way this works is it's essentially taboo. I'll use that uh, ex explanation rather than, uh, you know, my super Canadian one. <laughs> um, so essentially, I have three lists of ten movies, and I'm going to try and get each one of you guys to guess all ten movies. Uh, now, whoever gets the most movies in two minutes wins. Uh, we if we tie we'll tie you know that's kind of a thing here I'm I'm hoping that you guys are going to be uh, pretty good about this but um oh, hold on my recording apparently stopped when I crashed that time of course it did is there I think a, I'm going to lose is there one. a theme here Tony uh technical difficulties yeah there we go <laughs> all right so there are three uh, three themes here and Jamie's going to go first because uh, he won the crown in the second game. And uh, just to princess. make things even more kind of shitty because he's the winner of the previous game to make things harder so he can't just, like, you know, steamroll, uh, you guys get to pick his category. Uh, you guys will get to pick your own categories afterwards, <laughs> but you guys get to pick his category. So the three categories are cyberpunk movies, dystopian future movies, and 1982 movies. Ooh. Uh, so should I... we, how, about, how about on the count of three? You want to say it? Ooh, okay. You want to want to give that a shot? One, two, three, go. Is that what you're Wait, saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's gonna be one, two, three, and then we say it. Okay. okay. <laughs> and it was it was cyberpunk. Dystopia. Dystopia. Okay. Ready? One, two, three. Nineteen eighty-two. <laughs> I knew that was gonna happen. <laughs> Great. You guys can't agree. So the 
other one, I guess. <laughs> well, it's dystopias. Yeah. Do you guys want to give him dystopian, or uh, do you guys want to take that? Because keep so, mind, so you also I, want... I do have a good reason for picking 1982. I actually think it's because it'll be best in this direction because Jamie probably knows the movies from 1982 better than the other two of us, but we'll still have a hard time acting them out or talking about them. So I just thought that would be fun, but we can pick a different category. No, no, it's okay. I can do 1982. Okay. For that was my reasoning for it. All right. At, so give us the rules here. one more time, uh, Tony. All right. So essentially I've got two minutes on the clock. I've got a timer here. I have to get you to guess the movie title. Uh, without using any of the actors, directors, characters, or words in the title. Holy shit. Okay. All right. So more often than not, I will, uh, you know, try to get people to guess it with quotes and stuff. Is and the best by, to do. by character, you mean character name. Like you could say like, yeah. okay, the main character is a plumber. Like you can say that. Yeah, I can definitely say that if it was Mario. But like, you know, in this case, I can't say the character's name or any of the words in the title. Right. Okay. Okay. All right. So here we go, starting in three, two, one, 1982. So this movie is about a man who dresses as a woman to become Let's an see. actor. Yep. All right, so this one is about an impossible situation where a mother must uh, pick between Sophie's her choice. Children. Yep. All right, this one, uh, phone home. E.T. All right, so this one is about uh, India and about... Uh, Out of Africa. Oh, India. The Gandhi. Nope. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, you got it. All right, so this one takes place in Antarctica. There's a dog. A thing. That, yep. All right, so this one, uh, it involves your obviously established favorite actor, except for he is got a sword and doesn't really wear a shirt at all. Uh, a sword? It's not Indiana Jones. No, no. I totally recall and the running man. Oh, oh, oh Conan. Yep, Conan. all right. So this one takes place in a school, and it's got a guy who really likes pizza and surfing. Uh, Fast times at Ridgemont High. Yes. Uh, so this one has a bunch of puppetry to it. Dark Crystal. Yes. Uh, this one is about a little orphan. Annie. Yeah. This one is uh, a guy who has a really big knife and must go. And, um, Crawl? Nope. Uh, the guy from Rocky. It's his... His essential. Oh, Rambo. Or uh, first. That's not the name. Yeah, there it is. There it is. He got all 10 with a minute and 40 seconds. Damn. I watch a lot of movies, yo. I know. Hey, it's. Nope. All right. So uh, he finished off at at 120 seconds in total. So you guys have to beat that in 10. That's not going to happen. Jamie Jamie already won, but let's just, uh, for the purposes of entertainment, let's get destroyed. I feel good. (laughs) <laughs> All right, so uh, next up, uh, Patrick or uh, Dan, which ones do you want, cyberpunk or dystopian? You go first. I'll take dystopian. You'll take dystopian? All right, so here we go, starting in three, two, one. All right, so this one takes place on a train. It's really cold. It involves the guy who plays Captain America. Uh, yeah, 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 I just saw this. Um, you did? just saw it. We just talked about it. Holy There's shit. There's a shoe. The yeah, shoe doesn't the go on the head. Pass. I got to pass because I know the movie. I can't right. think of the title. All right. So this next one involves a lot of words that start with a certain letter that's near the end of the alphabet that I can't say because it's in the title. It involves a guy who has the anonymous mask. There's oh, a character. Um, v for Vendetta. Her head. V for Vendetta. Sorry? Yes. V for Vendetta. All right. So this one, there's. if you're into video games, it was the prequel to um, Skyrim technically. 
in that kind of universe. Uh, but this movie takes place with the guy from the Mission Impossible movies. Uh, he's really Legend? short. Sorry? Legend? Nope. Uh, you're, you've got the right actor. Famous it's dystopian. a more recent movie. Famous dystopian, Dan. <laughs> oh, right. Sorry. Um... Oh, man, That's a good movie, though. The one right, we're talking about. Pass. So Ridley underrated. Ridley you pass? You pass on I'll this? Pass. I'll pass. All right, so this next one has one of the longest shots. Uh, it takes place in a, a world where essentially children haven't been born for a long time. Oh, mm. um, children and men. Yes. All right, so this next one involves a girl. You did say children, though. I know <laughs> I did. Record. I realized that afterwards. <laughs> I'm going to say kid. Uh, this next one, a girl with a bow. She's got a bow. Uh, and she's along with a bunch of other kids have to kill each other in a tournament style thing. Oh, it's oh, a um, novel. God damn it! I'm so bad with titles. I can picture it. Yeah, <laughs> Jennifer like, Lawrence is in it. Um, yes, this so is three of them. God, what is that? <laughs> oh, you're so close. Pass, you're so close. Pass. Pass. I'm starving. All right, this next one essentially is the Donald Trump future, except for it's got um, the big muscly guy from Brooklyn Nine Nine as the president. It takes place in a future where oh, everyone's yeah. uh, dumb. President Camacho, yes, this is... Um, Time up. <laughs> man, I'm really bad. I can picture the movies and I cannot fucking title them. All right, so the first Legend? one was Snowpiercer. Right. I and then the one that you could I was doing the piercing motions, Dan. Yeah. The next one is uh, Oblivion. Right. Oh, so good. I'm going to watch that. My movie. dad loves that movie. It's pretty good. Hunger Games. You could get Hunger Games. I was saying I was starving. <laughs> All right. So, uh, that, I guess that leaves, uh, obviously, you know, we got a clear, clear cut forerunner here. Dan, you're obviously, I know, I'm sorry. Patrick, let's see if you can, uh, you can beat this. Is this. Gonna be, this is going to be fucking terrible. I don't even know two cyberpunk movies outside of Blade Runner, so this is going to be fun. <laughs> oh, I gave you Sweet. cyberpunk because I thought you'd be better at it than me, which is probably still a true <laughs> statement. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Two minutes on the clock, starting oh, three, two, one. Go. So this first one, the red pill or the blue pill? Oh, The Matrix. Yes. All right. So this next one, um, in movies, someone who's really good with computer is often referred to as a... Hackles. Yes. All right. So this next one is a frequency of light. Um, it's the color purple to an extreme. Ultraviolet. Yes. All right. So not the first, second, or third, third or fourth. It is the... Fifth element. Yes. All right, so this next one is a more recent one. It involves uh, kids going into a computer game using, like, VR, essentially. Oh, uh, Ender's Game. Nope. No. More recent than uh, that. Tron. Tron. Nope. More recent than that. <laughs> like, this came out 2018. Uh, it was a kid's Jumanji? <laughs> it's got a lot of Very references enjoyable. to 80s movies, including, like, The Shining. And oh, the Dark oh, Crystal. Oh, 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 I know. I was thinking of Ender. It's uh, Steven Spielberg. It's fucking uh, oh, Ready Player One. Yes. All right. So this next one you did mention previous in the other one. It's about someone who gets sucked into a video game and it is super cyberpunk. Yes. All right. So this next one involves the same actor from The Matrix, except for it's an older film and it's super cyberpunk. Oh, yeah. He might uh, the name of the character is the name of the movie. You can pass if you want to. Who doesn't know this? Ooh, I know this one. I got nothing else. If you, if you can't get it from that, I'm going to pass. pass. All right. Uh, next up, this one involves um, our favorite actor of the night, Mr. Barbarian. Himself, no. To Mars. Maybe. Oh, uh, Total Recall. Yes. 
All right, so this next one involves the guy from Oblivion, except for he has to prevent a crime that he hasn't committed yet before oh, everyone else gets oh, it. Oh, uh, great movie. Um, it's also Phil K. Dick. I can't fucking think of it. Hang on. Hang on. It's going to come to me. Five, four, three. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. One. Precox. The fuck is it called? Minority, Minority Report. <laughs> Minority Report. Thank you. Minority Report. It. Johnny Mnemonic was the character. Johnny Mnemonic, right? yeah. Yes. Which was horrible. It was, but it makes the list of cyberpunk movies. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Hey, look, you know what's you also a great, movie. an interesting cyberpunk movie is the one with Jude Law, where they they have these things that attach to them. They look like existence? controllers, but they're existence. Yeah. I haven't seen that yet, but it, people keep recommending it to me based on it's weird, you know, <coughs> weird or stuff like that. Is this so Soderbergh? Who did that? Yeah. No, Cronenberg. Oh, Cronenberg. <laughs> Patrick, God, I would That's I would have done favorite. way better in your category, Patrick. <laughs> Apparently Johnny you would have done way better in yours, but I yeah. also the pressure when you're not like you know, on the spot. Yep. Although the we had a very, very clear for, uh, forerunner there, yeah, he, he didn't just, like, even the disadvantage didn't uh, slow him down. So uh, technically, uh, Jane, you get the title of the pretty pretty princess is what we call it. Always does. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to go in fingers? honor of his favorite actor of all time. I'd like to go with Jamie the Barbarian. Alright, so guys, um just so we can start wrapping up here because there has been a lot of technical difficulties and I've had you on the line for a long time trying to figure out Skype being a pain in my ass. Um so what is one thing that you guys have learned from Blade Runner? Like the number one takeaway that you have learned and have been able to apply to your life. Um, Jamie, you started, you won the last round. You're the pretty, pretty princess. What did you learn? Well, I think the beauty of Blade Runner, both films, both the full universe is that it teaches you to become a better person. It teaches you to become empathetic. It's, it's, it's Blade Runner really is for me, it's essentially a mirror and how can I be better? How do I ask better questions? How do I be better to my fellow man? How do I look, you know, I mean, how if I'm on the if I'm if I'm in a car and I'm on the highway and it's slow or whatever people acting crazy? How do I find empathy? You know, oh. how do I put uh, other people before me? And I think that's really um, and just really uh, enjoying life. And I think I think of the end of the original Blade Runner, and you see I've said this many times on our show, but you see Deckard coming to get Rachel, and he's bathed in his costume, but it's this brown hooded parka or whatever it is he's wearing and he's just so warm it's the most warm you ever see him and he's stepped into his humanity so i think um it's it's this uh vehicle if if you let it in it's a way to kind of find find the better angels of angels of your nature essentially fair enough patrick what's one thing you learned being the second in uh second running there in the final game uh well first off i would like to just you know jamie good job you know i i, I missed my time with the crown i uh it'll look better on you I, i'm i'm okay with that i'm just you know gonna take a little while in terms of it um so for me blade runner is a wonderful constant reminder to not operate on my default setting and to uh to seek to question whether or not i really know things and not to assume that I do and not to assume that I know what other people are going through. And I think um, it's really easy in life to sort of just pilot and go on autopilot, you know, and to sort of just kind of swim through it. 
And that's what Deckard's doing. You know, he's he's obviously despondent, but but he but he that's what his life has become basically a series of waking dreams. And um and he wakes up, and I think that's uh, a, something that we can all benefit from is is whether or not we're really in control of our lives and really appreciating it. And um and when it's time to make the jump to like wake up again to be ready to do that. Fair. That's very beautiful. Dan, what's one thing that you learned following up everyone again? Those things resound with me as well. And I, I certainly second both statements. And I, I also, the movie has affected me in my life in that way as well, in terms of being empathetic towards other people, um, questioning my own reality. But I'd actually like to, in a moment of sentimentality, but also pulling away from the movie, um, I would like to talk for a second about the fans and the people who are in this world and in others. Tony, we're just meeting you, but I'm sure that all of us qualify as nerds on one level or another. Um, some more than others. It depends on what we're talking about, but you know, movie, dude, I play D and D twice a week. I am like there, nerdy. There you hardcore. go. You know, or like Star Wars <laughs> nerds and Alien and all that. But um, and I know Patrick uh, has made this comment before, where he a didn't used to think other people were into Blade Runner really, and like didn't really have a community to belong to and to talk about it. And that's certainly the way I felt all the way up until I discovered our podcast, but you know, a year and a half ago. Um, and it has led me to so many incredible discoveries. I mean, these guys are like my two best friends now, honestly, even though, you know, uh, I haven't actually met Patrick in the flesh yet, although I will in a couple of weeks and he lives in Boston. Jamie and I have hung out. Oh, you gonna, <laughs> um, <laughs> Jamie and I have hung out a lot and become really close and he's met my family and my sister and my mom and all that. Um, and like now we're meeting you and reaching out, you know, this was definitely a deliberate effort on my part, but certainly from all of us of wanting to try and find another podcast that was in a similar position to us with a similar fan base who we could cross over to and be like, Hey, look, look at what we were doing. We want to showcase what you guys are doing. Um, and it, I've started listening to your show, Tony, from this experience. And it's really taught me that there's this whole world out there on Facebook, on the internet, on podcasting of people who connect um, on these especially science fiction and nerdy kind of concepts, but also on a deeper level. And it really mm -hmm. allows us to have these in-depth conversations and we can relate to it and you can use it and mention it to people and you instantly make that connection with somebody and can understand a lot of concepts right off the bat without even having to talk about it. And it's just a wonderful experience. And so I really have to thank all of you guys for the work that you do on your, on your, all your podcasts, uh, for, you know, inviting us on for Jamie and Patrick inviting me on their show, all the fans, all the people who listen to us in Canada and listen to you in Canada. Like it's really cool to feel like you're a part of a community. And I think that's really changed my life in a year in 2018, which was one of the hardest years of my life. I went through a lot of personal things and I know the guys did as well. And so it's just been a really incredible experience. And I never thought Blade Runner was going to teach me that in that way but it did that is i i'm a little speechless there's <laughs> a, a goddamn good follow-up dan <laughs> bam so this entire time you've been bitching and you've just been waiting just to just drop a bomb so. <laughs> just unloading that <laughs> all right so uh this brings us to the final segment here what would you guys rate blade runner out of five and why so dan after that uh, emotional speech you just gave there what would you rate blade runner out of five and why well, I think that when I think about giving it a rating, which is something I've actually never done now that I think about it, I guess the premise is if you can do 30 plus episodes on the same movie, everybody knows where you stand on it. But um, 
I or think, do they? <laughs> I, think, I think while I would obviously give it a five and anybody that knows me and listens to this would know that that's what I would give it. I think the context is the thing I take, I, that I weigh the most when I'm rating this film. While it has aged beautifully mm-hmm. and stunningly so, stunningly so in a way that no other, especially science fiction film from that era or from any era, really. I mean, you you can watch Minority Report hasn't aged as well as Blade Runner, and it's way newer as an example. Yes, like, there, there's tons of examples, but both in visuals and in the story and what seems corny at the time. You know, you can find corny lines in Star Wars that like maybe you didn't feel that way when you first saw it, but you know, there's tons of examples. But I think in the context, the financial difficulties, what Ridley Scott had to put up with, what Sean Young had to put up with uh, in some of these very violent scenes that really shook her and she had to take a month off the set and all these things. Mm -hmm. And the fact that probably most importantly, Ridley Scott is famous for going on record. And I don't want to say getting more credit than is due for the end result, but literally he was like, I was just trying to make a thriller. I wanted to make a noir futuristic thriller and do a good job of it. I was not trying to do anything esoteric. And so in a very rare example, this film goes like way beyond the combined work of all the people that were involved in it and became something that had a life of its own and became way bigger than what it was. And very, very few films can do that because there's a certain level of magic that goes with that, that nobody can put on a chart and nobody can really pinpoint the team that did 2049 can probably pinpoint it to everyone involved in the movie was really passionate about the original film. And so that certainly helps. But on that spectrum, I have to even rate the first film higher than I would the second, simply because of the time it came out of and the fact that it didn't have that background and that passion. And most of the people involved in it didn't even know what the hell they were doing in terms of what's the final scope here. So taking all those challenges into account and looking at the movie 35, 37 years later, um, I think that's really where the five comes from for me, not just in how I pers- how much I personally obviously love the film and what it does for mm-hmm. me and the feeling I get from watching it. And it's such a familiar, you know, it's like, it's like a womb. I mean, it's, it's such a beautiful place to be watching that film. I have to really give that. It's the context that gives me the rating. That's fair. So Patrick, what about yourself? So um, I, 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 you know, I didn't, I didn't go to film school. Jamie went to film school, so he'll, he might, Correct me on this later, but um, he's currently helping letting his dog out, so he's going to miss this part. So he can't correct me at all. That, that's why uh, I went to you. I was like, "There's an empty screen now." <laughs> <laughs> he, he had to let his dog out. So I, uh, <clears throat> I assign ratings based on how uh, accurately I think the final product matches the what it was supposed to be, and I don't mean that by like necessarily that they set out to make a, a movie a certain way and it ended up being exactly that movie. But what, what I mean is what the final product is like, how, how perfectly does it embody what it stands for? So the reason why I give it a five out of five mm-hmm. is because it has nothing to do. I do not think that it is a movie that works for everybody. I think it's a movie that probably by a lot of people's standards is too esoteric or too boring or it doesn't speak to them, or it's too dark, or it's too strange. And it is all of those things. Like, it, it, it is dark, and it is strange, and it is boring to a degree because it's slow. I don't find it boring because there's a lot going on. Oh, dare you. Attention. But, but, <laughs> but when I say that, I mean, by the standards of a theater goer in 1982, 
the masses would probably think of it as somewhat of a boring or a strange or an esoteric film. So I don't think that it's a universal movie necessarily, although the themes are. But I think as what it was actually destined to be, which is an eternally relevant poetic allegory to the human condition told through the lens of science fiction, I think it literally couldn't be better. I think it literally could not be uh, better suited to that paradigm. And that's why we will never run out of episodes for a podcast, even though we only, we only have two movies to talk about, you know, in a book and some expanded universe things. It is it is a conversation that can literally never stop because it is an open-ended allegory. And when you when you do that well, it, you've you've essentially accomplished something miraculous. And that's fucking five out of five. Fair enough. So Jamie, yourself, apparently you're our film school expert here. So what would you rate this movie out of five and why? Well, I'll come at this from a different way. I mean, I agree, of course, with everything that the guy said. Um, but I think just I rate it five out of five out of pure just what the movie is for the genre, what it's become, how science fiction has almost been built on the back of Blade Runner. There's no other film you can say that for. I think for a minute, 2001 had it. You saw a lot of 2001 in um, Star Wars, sort of. That was kind of like, everybody was like, oh my God, 2001 is amazing. And then Star Wars was created. But then uh, Ridley Scott saw Star Wars and he was excited about it, but he wanted to do his own kind of vision and he made Blade Runner. And... Uh, the genre went off in a completely different direction. It was it almost became okay for it not to be clean and sanitized. And um, uh, not that 2001 is sanitized in theme. It's not. Um, but uh, the aesthetics are very sanitized, very clean. That's kind of the future that everyone kind of thinks about. You, you know, you're whether you're at O'Hare Airport or whatever, the airports, they all kind of looked have that futuristic look. Whereas Ridley Scott took took the whole genre a different route and it's never been the same so just on that level um every every science fiction film that comes out almost is compared to blade runner these days mm -hmm. that's the litmus test you know and uh, a lot of times it's the visuals but sometimes it's oh yeah look like for instance uh i just saw a short film called rise uh, it's like a concept trip a concept film for a movie that a bunch of people want to make um but it dealt with robots wanting to live with humans who are sentient and the humans say, no, we're not going to allow this. Again, these are themes uh, written by K Philip K. Dick first birthed in Blade Runner. And really aside from Blade Runner 2049, I don't know any other film that's done it that well, not to say that there hasn't been great films. So I just, just on pure, um, what's the term I'm looking for? Um, non -prails. <laughs> no, there's a certain word I'm looking for. Really, it's just uh, on, just the 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 effects the film has uh, on on the the genre of sci-fi. Um, not just films, but seminal books. is probably the word. Yeah, you yeah yes, totally, totally. It's a, uh, it's 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 a um, it was a game changer and continues to be. That film from 1982 continues to change everything. Everything is always compared to it, and every a lot of stuff just falls short from it. Uh, and even like, you go to Star Wars, the prequels. You know, uh, when they're in Coruscant and they're walking around, what does that look like? It looks like Blade Runner. You know, a little bit. They're, 
it, it established a like future shit, that shit Blade Runner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very clean Blade Runner. Um, but yeah, so yeah, five out of five, just uh, just for the monolith of a film that it is. I think the negative proof, really quick, of Jamie's point is that I don't think there is any other movie that, if you removed it from history and from existence, would impact the rest of filmmaking the way it would if you were to pluck Blade Runner out and delete it and pretend like it never existed. Yep. That's an interesting concept. I think there's a bunch of movies that you could, it, like, would have the same effect if you plucked it. It would definitely affect things. But that's definitely, uh, Blade Runner is definitely one of them. Myself, personally, just because you guys give it all fives, I can't do that. <laughs> sure. like, as much as I want to, I love this film. Um, I think one, of, I give it a 4.5. So I'm like, I'm pretty much right there. Um, but the only reason I can't give it that full uh, five is because I know that it definitely had some trials and tribulations to it, um, which I know kind of makes it stronger. But the fact that they had to re-release in 2007 another cut of it, that that is now the most well-known, which I think is amazing. But I also think it kind of leaves this kind of going, well, why wasn't that done the first time? And it, it makes me kind of doubt, I'll have a little bit of doubt as much as I love the new one. And that's the one you I'm should look into that because that was his original vision. He was forced to change it and give yes. us the film that we got in 82. That was the original vision. No, no. And I totally get that. But that, that it's that little thing there that he gave in to like that kind of demand. And then. I, I almost think if the one that came out in 2007, the original vision had come out in 82, we would see an even bigger, different like cinema scape essentially totally. than we do today. And I think that's kind of the only reason why I can't give it that full, full marks. Although if you go to my MDB page, I definitely have given it full marks, but also just because you guys all gave it full marks and I can't in good conscience not, you know, point out at least a little bit of a negative negativity to it just because that's who I am as a person. Sure. And I don't want to give a hundred percent on like a movie. And I obviously realized going into this, you guys were all going to give it five. <laughs> and if you didn't, I'd be like, what? But, but I would not, I would not give the theatrical cut a five. Oh, I wouldn't. Either. Me neither. No, me neither. Yeah, me neither. There you go. Hey, we're I'll give it like a 3.7, maybe a four. I, I Let's think go back a, through. No, I'd give, give the theatrical cut like a uh, 3.8. Let's go back through. We'll all give our rating for each of the seven versions. Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, White in the name of time here, guys, it's a, uh, you know, we're kind of running a little long. Um, where can my audience go and find your guy, you guys online on Twitter, all that kind of stuff. What are your handles and where's the best place to find your episodes? Patrick. I don't know who would, when you guys uh, normally so, plug so, your stuff. Uh, uh, the short answer, if you just want to go ahead and subscribe, is you can go to bit.ly slash shoulder of Orion podcast, um, or oh, shoulder of Orion iTunes, or, or bit.ly slash shoulder of Orion Google Play. But we live at perfectorganism.com, which is the name of our sort of holding company for both of our shows. Um, we're on Facebook at, uh, Perfect or, at uh, Shoulder of Orion. We're on Twitter at We Are Replicant. I believe, right, Jamie's at the handle on Twitter. Um, and uh, we have an Instagram account as well, which you can search for, and it's linked on the other pages. Um, and we would really like to see you guys come to our social uh, discussion group, which is called Fields of Calantha, and is a really thriving, wonderful Blade Runner community founded on principles of uh, inclusiveness and acceptance and um, valuing having a great debate and talking about the things that we love so much, and is a constant reminder that no longer does Blade Runner live only in our internal existences, but because of this podcast and these communities online, now we're part of an external environment and fields of plant. That is a great way to do that, but you can get started by going to perfectorganism.com, And that is a good way to get rolling. 
Excellent. How about, Is how there about an you? episode in particular that you would recommend? Oh. Oh, man. What do you guys think? Uh, well. Yeah. Let me give the well, listener perspective and the most latecomer to the show perspective because I'm sure – well, you, I mean, you guys can chime in too with your favorites. But I do this all the time, uh, whether it's a professional we're interacting with and I want to give sort of the best rounded example of what we do because there are different style episodes, whether it's a roundtable or an interview with a professional or, or what have you. Um, and so the show focused on 2049 because when it started, that was the movie that was being released. So there are a lot of 2049 themed episodes as well as the original. But I would say, um, I believe it's episode 14 where Jamie interviewed the model makers, um, some of the model makers that built the models in 2049. It's really it's a nice, long, in-depth episode. If you're into um, just really making anything with your hands and model building and like creating a diverse miniature world, that's an exceptional episode. That's one-on-one with Jamie and one of the model makers um, from Weta. Three uh, of the model makers. I'm sorry, three of the model makers from Weta in New Zealand, and they just did a fantastic job. Um, we have conversations a little bit later when I come on. We had a great episode on The Replicant in All of Us that has to do with sort of how minorities feel in society and how um, people connect with replicants in different ways in the story. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. What about you guys? Patrick, I, well, I, I would I would give a shout out to our Deckard episode because it, there, it took us 32 shows or something to get to a show about the person who most of the world is, associates most with Blade Runner. And we realized that that was the reason why we needed to do it is because we had no idea how to approach him as a character because he'd become too big to talk about, basically. So so it's it's a wonderful episode. And we kept a lot of the not the dead space, but a lot of the kind of stop starts in it in the final edit, because hearing us wrestle with this character, I think is some of the best podcasting that we've done and hearing us contradict ourselves and go back and forth and get into arguments was really fun. And I think if you're looking for like a prototypical shoulder of Orion discussion episode, I would start with finding Deckard. Excellent. Jamie. Yeah. Um, I would say my personal favorite of our interviews has been was Lauren Pita. Um, and Lauren Pita played, uh, she was the Rachel, um, digital model, essentially. I mean, she was there on set, but she played Rachel in 2049. Um, and that was just, it's about a half hour long interview. It wasn't, you know, but it was really fun and insightful. I mean, she was there on set with Harrison Ford and, and, um, Sean Young and the Villeneuve. And, um, it was just to sit, you know, to, to have a conversation with someone who has that experience, um, to be that close to almost the set for me, for us. Um, yeah, I, 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 I'm always thinking about that episode. So and that one was called or is called her eyes were green. Oh, excellent. All right. Tony, did you want to briefly mention your show and yeah, give, give us your plugs time? too. Well, uh, I usually toss this on at the uh, end in like a pre-recorded one, but I'm on all the major social medias. I have the same handle across the board. So I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, at FlixXRaid, uh, as well as that's my website, FlixXRaid.com. That's where you can find all of my episodes. Um, for your fans, if they're fans of sci-fi, the most recent sci-fi episode that we've done that we had a lot of fun with and also from 1982 was uh, The Thing. The Thing. It was a great episode. Yes. Yeah. 
One of my right? that was uh, one of the most uh, the most recent ones, and then one of the most fun ones that I I think we had a lot of fun doing was uh, our white chicks episode, which is another one that I always like to <laughs> direct people to, just because uh, we we did something a little different with that one that turned out a lot of fun. Um, my wife joined us as my uh, co-host on that one, and I had given her a chunk of money to go buy makeup, and then had three guys, including myself, try to guess the prices of makeup. We don't do well. <laughs> Um, but that was, uh, that's what we did instead of the prices, right. For a, uh, you know, something a little different, but that's one of the ones that I think we had a little bit more fun with. And, uh, those are the two I usually recommend for showing kind of the diversity of our episodes. Uh, it's like, you know, a newer one. The first, the first cut of white chicks shown to screening test audiences. 18 hours. hours long. (laughs) (laughs) There's I'm a kidding. Whole kidding. extended scene of them putting on makeup and pretending <laughs> to be, uh, like real chicks, and there was a sex scene. It was weird. Anyway, <laughs> how would you? Uh, just really quick, how would you? Maybe you were going to go into this, but uh, how would you describe your show as a whole? Like what? What kind of theme or creation? Or talk a little bit about that. So my uh, my show on a whole is essentially. What we do is we have a roundtable discussion every week. We normally watch the movie beforehand and then record immediately afterwards. Uh, And we'll sit down, we'll have deep discussions about it, play a bunch of games, have a lot of fun. And uh, realistically, part of the reason that we enjoy doing it, me and my friends, that we get together to do this, is it gives us a chance to sit down uh, face-to-face, essentially, because we have like a square table. We all sit across from each other. And we get to actually have conversations that, you know, in today's society are actually a little harder to have. And then we record them and then put them on the internet. Because, you know, that's the way it is. But we get to actually unpack a lot of things that we think about films that maybe we don't talk about you know and especially when we cover such a broad range of stuff we get to like really nitpick and talk about really different topics that we get then have our scent to say on and we get to get really interesting with it and i think part of the fun of that is i've also been able to meet people like you guys um and doing this i've actually started working in a couple local film fests here and i get to meet those kind of people and that's cool Right. And so it's like I'm now a programmer for a film fest uh, locally here, at the Okotoks Film Fest, uh, which is uh, in a city near my city. But I live kind of on the outskirts of my city. Anyway, point is, you know, it's one of those things where I get to work with them. And I think that's part of the fun is everyone watches movies, but it's not often where we sit down and actually really talk about them. And we talk about like, uh, you know, what the content of films actually is. And even like talking about this, we got really he- deep and heavy into kind of Blade Runner. And I love doing that as well. And I think that's kind of what I like to do in my show is I like to get really deep in comedy movies and talk about really existential things and things like Little Nicky about like the devil. <laughs> right. like, you know, so it's like I actually enjoy getting to have those deeper conversations on movies you wouldn't normally have those thoughts on or at yeah. least not have those discussions on. You'd be like normally you walk out of the dinner like that was fun. I like to go, well, why was it fun? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And You're like, really let's talk questions. about child sex robots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I love But why have we just saw white chicks? I don't care. We're talking about child sex robots. <laughs> and Tony, I think one of the things that attracted me to the show after listening to a few episodes is that um, you have a good mix of depth and love for film, obviously. But you guys also have a really good time and have a really good banter and like throw in some levity in these games that you do. And I think that's that plays really well. And um, I think that's why we decided to join you, because sometimes we can go a little too dark or a little too <laughs> deep or a little too serious. And it's nice to like mix it up and blend those qualities. And I think uh, this is actually a really kick ass episode. <laughs> I've really enjoyed this. 
Well, I have too, and I've enjoyed having you guys on, and I can't wait for us to do 2049 and know full and not just like reference briefly at it. Yeah, I'm so glad we decided to split it up. That was a good (laughs) one. Could you imagine if we did a five hour episode? (laughs) (laughs) To find out more about our podcast, go to www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is also available for listening or download through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, and Podbean.